Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reveille, reveille, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Oh, oh yeah. We don't hope. We oh, wish. It's Monday, Biatch. I, I'm cool. hosting. I don't know what day of the week it is, Luke. I'm all it's kinds Monday, of It's Monday, Biatch. Here. I'm hosting. Sit back down, good sir. I will be in charge today. Good Lord, BC. Look at that face. Red. Yeah, put on those gloves. Put on those gloves, Junior. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I had a whole bit planned, too. Come on, man. Damn. Save it for Wednesday. Save it for Wednesday. There we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome on this eighth day of January to uh, the least coordinated show <laughs> to start things off on the eighth of January. Don't tell Hi, everyone. what the last 20 minutes would look like for the show. Please don't tell anyone, Luke. Okay, God. Also, is it me or is it his mic sound a little bit off? Mikey, is that me? Yeah, you're on the computer mic. Let's fix that up here real quickly. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Morning Combat. Uh, my name is Luke Thomas. That's Brian Campbell. We're the host of this program. I joined you from the capital of Estados Unidos right here in Washington, D.C. He joins you from uh, the butt crack of Connecticut. What part of Connecticut would you say you're from, B.C.? I'm from uh, suburban Hartford, greater Hartford. Suburban Luke? Hartford. There you go. Well, yeah. no, I'm not now from you say- there. I, I reside there. I'm from the Naugatuck Valley. People know this about me, Luke, okay? They yeah. know this. Uh the last 20 minutes before the show were a lot of BC being a Karen. He was being a Karen this morning because he was having tech issues, but we worked him out. Look at it. You sound great. You look great. Hey, BC, how was your week? The first four letters are Karen, our care. I just want to remind you of that, okay? With a K, though. With a K. That's the kind of, that's the. Yeah, just like our show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all right. BC, how was the 18 inches of snow? Did it match uh, the 18 inches of cold outside, power? Luke. Uh, I removed eight of it yesterday. That's all we got. It was, uh, you know, a little bit backbreaking. The old snowblower had to work OT, but I'm here. I've gotten through my own self-imposed tech issues. My mic is fine, and everything's going to be all right, guys. Baby, it is cold outside, but luckily, Luke, we got these hot ass mma and boxing takes coming right up right yeah we certainly do all right so let's talk about this for just a second here on today's show we've got well relatively breaking news i would say about ufc 299 ufc 300 on friday after the show there was big news that broke about francis Ngannou. we're going to get to that and then at about uh at about an hour or so we're going to be joined by eric mcgracken a, a attorney out of canada who runs the combat sports law website to dissect and under, better understand the new UFC's anti-doping program, plus DMs, plus have you seen this shit? Quite the packed show here today on this Monday morning. BC, 
I want to remind folks they can get shirts like mine at morningcombat.store. Isn't that right? That is, that is. In fact, uh, you know, if you want to take it the next step further, if you want to consummate this relationship even deeper for percentages off, how about using that code LIVE10 right now? Get 10% off all of our fantastic merch at morningcombat.store. RJ is waiting for it. Look, I don't even know who RJ works for. No, I'll tell you, he works for us, okay? Because he's pushing that merch out the damn door right now, okay? He works Hell for yeah. number two. That's who he works for. Number who two. does number two work for, Luke? All right. Uh, so there's that. Of course, if you want to reach the show, morningcombat at gmail.com to email the producer. <laughs> uh, the producers don't, no longer exist, but the producer certainly does. Hey, the so producer reach... was great on tech support this morning when I had that meltdown hey. over, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's a super producer, but he is just one man. Uh, so, we, But you can email him, morningcombat at gmail.com. You see, we do have a lot to get to. So then, oh, yes, the socials right there. Look at all that. Morning Combat on Insta, on Twitter, on TikTok, and everything in between, and you can follow us there. Uh, anything else to say before we get started here? No, I'm ready to absolutely deliver. I thought it was Wednesday this whole day, Luke. I'm just an absolute walking mess. You know, it's great. It's it's great. You know, winter depression, Luke, is one of the worst things that's ever happened. That seasonal thing that kicks you right in the right in the uh, front hole. You know what I mean, Luke? Right? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Right? Just, just, yes, you know, get this foot caught up in there and you're like, what do I do next? I can't move. I'm stuck to this thing, you know? Last last question on this. Did you stay true to the game when it came to your responsibilities to continue working out? I, I got here directly from the gym to do this show today, Ooh. Luke. That's why I'm all red-faced, okay? All right. Very good. What did you do with the Leg gym day today? today which, good luck to the rest of my family, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Leg day's a real... Leg day's a bitch, Luke. I'm going to be honest with you. Especially when you don't work legs for 20 years. It's a real bitch, you know? Yeah, it'll tear your ass up, quite literally. Yeah. Uh, all right. With that in mind, let's get this party started if we can. Topic number one, as we kick off this Monday show. So Dana White made an announcement at about, like, midnight or maybe even one in the morning, East Coast time, and it went something like this. Dustin Poirier was going to be back in action. Not at UFC 300. There is some news about that, but at UFC 299, which by the way, I will say is starting to look stacked. And here's part of that reason. Dustin Poirier in a 155 pound fight will take on dot, dot, dot Benoit St. Denis BC. My question to you is very simple. While this fight is fantastic. And I do want to talk about why it is fantastic. Did Dustin Poirier make a mistake in accepting a fight? That is very high risk and very low reward. Uh, on the surface level with the information we have, it feels like a yes. Now, I say with the information we have, because was he guaranteed a certain big fight he was coveting and needed to accept this fight to get there? That would be understandable. Or could you take it even further and wonder, had he been trying to get the sort of big name matchups where, look, we know where he's at right now, Poirier. He's in that Rich Franklin phase of his career. Could he still contend for a title? Probably, yes. But he's also a celebrity name who you can put in there in a main event, a co-main event of a pay-per-view against very big names across it. So, Luke, was he trying to get other fights and it didn't happen? He just needed to come back, stay fresh, and we know what Dustin Poirier is about. He's not going to duck big names, even a riser who looks as nasty as BSD. I can believe all that. But I also can say this. I think I echo what a lot of the fans on, on Twitter, at least in the immediate response, very shocked that this is the fight he did. So I'll say without knowing the full details, I do feel like this has that potential to be the wrong kind of crossroads fight for that aging name who still got it, but is always 
you know, can be vulnerable against big time sluggers. Is this that type of crossroads fight where he could end up effing around and finding out that the new generation is here? Very well could be, Luke. I think we do need a little bit more information, though, about what his true motivation was. Yeah, no doubt about it. First of all, let me set uh, some of the parameters here. So first of all, this is the co-main event of UFC 299. That's the first part about it. And as a consequence, it's also going to be four or five rounds. This will not be a three-round just regular fight, even though there is no title on the line. So this actually has a little bit of stature. And BC, when you look at the UFC 299 card, I mean, my goodness, dude, there's banger after banger on this. Obviously, your main event, Sean O'Malley taking on Chito Vera for the Bantamweight title. This fight, Poirier taking on St. Denis, now is your co-main event. Gilbert Burns versus Jack De La Maddalena. Kevin Holland versus the, uh, I wouldn't say returning, but the matriculating anyway. Michael Venom Page, Curtis Blades versus Jelton Almeida. Mateusz Gamrot, RDA, Piotr Jan, Song, uh, Song Yadong, Pedro Munoz, Kyler Phillips. I mean, there yeah. are tons of interesting fights. Side note for me, BC, because it's not really what we're talking about. Side note for me, I actually think there is a very good chance 299's card could end up better than 300. That is a little bit unclear. I don't know that to be the case, but I'm starting to get that vibe a little bit. I'll put that aside for just a minute, but let's stick to this. I mean, I will say this, BC. January 19th is actually a pretty important day. It's not the day of UFC 299. That won't be till March 9th. By the way, the greatest rapper of all time, Died on March 9th. January 19th is when Dustin Poirier turns 35 years old. BC, I have to tell you, 35 years old, we know statistically anyway, that can be a bit of a Grim Reaper demarcation line. And then secondly, coming off that head kick KO, although he was performing well prior to that, but when you add in all of the time which he spent competing, all of the miles he's accumulated, all of the injuries he's had to deal with, and all of, frankly, the trauma that he's been through with two Gaethje fights and the Max Holloway fight and the Eddie Alvarez fight. I mean, he's had so many blood and guts fights. This is what is so interesting to me about it. BC, I love that he is doing this because it is creating an incredible matchup. And Washington, if he gets a win over Dustin Poirier, even with these circumstances that I have mentioned, it would be a huge feather in his cap. It would be a monster move up the rankings uh, at a time when, you know, to go from Matt Frivola, which is a nice win, to then Dustin Poirier, former interim champion, and a guy who's been sort of a perennial top five for the last several years, that is a gigantic leap up. So I actually want to commend Dustin Poirier for taking a fight like this because he doesn't get a whole lot out of it other than to say he's still relevant as a lightweight. He doesn't necessarily move him, I think, all that close to a title shot, although that remains to be seen. But it does give the fans something absolutely incredible to look forward to. But to answer the basic question, BC, did he make a mistake? That depends on what he wants ultimately out of this experience. It depends sure. on how many fights he has left. It depends exactly what kind of course he's trying to chart or charter, I should say. But at the same time, BC, if I was advising him, is this the fight I would have advised him to take? Unless there was basically not a lot of other options, the answer is probably no. This is a tough one for me to say he can get a lot out of it, even with a win, but there is a lot he can lose in the event of a loss. It's an interesting calculus he has made.
Yeah. And when you're in that spot, I call it the Rich Franklin spot because that's where he was at the twilight of his career where he could bounce across multiple divisions, be a last minute fill in for a title shot or a main event. I mean, that's where Dustin Poirier is at. But Luke, an interesting note from Dana's speech when he revealed this on social media was he said BSD has been saying that he believes he's the new BMF of the UFC. And he'll have the opportunity to prove it against Dustin Poirier. That was part of a Sports Illustrated story recapping the announcements in which they actually went with the headline, Dustin Poirier booked for five-round BMF eliminator fight. So, Luke Thomas, here's what's interesting about that in trying to figure out what this fight means for Poirier. I do have to be reminded often that he just recently was in a BMF fight and lost, you know, via violent head kick in his rematch with Gaethje. It doesn't look like he was in the cards to get a trilogy fight with Gaethje. It doesn't even look like he was in the cards to get a fourth fight with Conor McGregor because McGregor's comeback stalled and there's other names that seem to be closer up. I wonder, Luke, if this accomplishes two things. Maybe it's framed to him as exactly how Dana's quote said it. There's a new badass in town that thinks he's of this ilk, that he's, you know, of your ilk. And then you flip that with maybe Dustin's looking around, realizing some of those big money tickets. He's either already fought these guys or... It just didn't line up in terms of making these fights. Maybe this turned out to be the best path because he's still at a point where title contention is not completely out of the realm. I mean, when he beat Michael Chandler two fights ago, we were wondering if he would sort of parachute in and use that star power pass to get in there for a title shot. I'm wondering if he looked at the lay of the land, realizes, okay, this is probably my my shot to get back into a really big fight given who's available. Oh, I got to go through this young guy who's not yet quite fully proven himself and it's a co-main event, I'll get paid for it. It probably all came together. But do you buy into what Dana's saying, that this is some kind of, you know, BMF number one contender bid, or maybe that's Sports Illustrated saying that? I I, I buy less into the BMF side of it. I'm just wondering at the end of the day, did did Dustin Poirier look at the landscape and go, they are offering me this young guy. If I beat him in a pay-per-view co-main event, maybe I'm getting uh, Islam next. Maybe I'm getting whoever I want next. Sometimes, Luke, you got to go back and prove it again. Let's not forget he is coming off of a head kick knockout on the pay-per-view level. Well, okay, here's the interesting part about this, BC. Let's just look at the numbers, at the rankings, right? What everyone else thinks of them, this is what they are as we speak today. So obviously Islam is uh, unranked in the sense that he's the champion. Number one is Charles Oliveira. We will get to him in just a minute. Two is Gaethje. We're still kind of waiting to see what happens with him, potentially at UFC 300. But again, Poirier just lost to him, so that's not going to be a thing. Three is Poirier himself, so he's sitting at three. Four is Saryukin. Again, we're going to get to him in a second. He's got a fight lined up. Five is Chandler. Chandler's kind of in the McGregor sweepstakes. And, of course, they already fought. Was there any real need to run that one back? Not really. Six is Gamrot. I guess they could have gone that one, although Gamrot has another fight already lined up for 299 as well. Darius coming off of a loss. I'm guessing that Poirier didn't want that one. Uh, then you have eight is Fazeev. I don't know what the story is there. Nine is Hooker. Ten is Jalen Turner. Eleven is RDA. RDA is facing Gamrod, as we mentioned earlier. Twelve. Twelve is Benoit Saint-Denis. BC, how many times have we seen a guy at number three give a shot to someone at number 12 Sure. First of all, and make a good fight out of it, which they did, which speaks to the quality of both guys. But this is what I mean about Dustin Poirier. Again, I want to commend him for taking this risk. We actually need guys to do stuff like this when they otherwise wouldn't necessarily do it. I'm not in any way upset that he did it. I am curious, though, and this is what you've been alluding to. I am curious about the calculus when you've got that much of a gap between them what were the other options that fell apart? Because you're asking, you know, to what extent is the BMF number one sweepstakes sort of involved here? 
It is if the UFC wants it to be, sort of as the short answer. But short of that, like, why would you take this? It's very, very risky. But like another celebrity fight you could have made was Max, but they fought twice already, and we've seen what happens in that matchup. You're not going to get Connor now, on and on. So maybe it came down to Luke. This was just the, I don't want to say the biggest fight available, because as good as Benoit Saint-Denis looks to be, you know, he's not quite there yet. He just had the Frivola win. This is a, a leap. This is a leap in the rankings, too. But sometimes, Luke, you know, you do have to look at the landscape. You don't want to sit around for long periods. I do wonder, and we're going to get into Oliveira and Saryukian next, but over Oliveira and Saryukian fighting each other removes Islam from that. Is that more to do with Ramadan, or is that meaning the idea of was Poirier told some level of you get by this young stud on the rise here in this big fight setup at 299? post-Ramadan, could you be that guy again for Islam? I'm not really sure, Luke, but it is interesting to think about. Either way, it's a crossroads fight. We're going to find out if the old guard here, getting oh so close, as you mentioned, to that stat of death there for welterweight and below 35 and over. Can he hold off a guy who's coming on, or is this the, the passing of the torch? I guess in some ways, Luke, it's not completely different to when Gaethje fought Rafael Fazeev a few fights back. It was his way to remind us that he's still super elite after some big brawls, after losing a couple title opportunities. Maybe for Poirier, that's the way to do it. Because while you can, as an aging celebrity fighter, and although Poirier not a former full champion, former interim champion, he he's close enough, you can sometimes ride that to be selective, get only big matchups and big opportunities. But if you want to stay active, if you want to climb the ladder and go after something, sometimes you have to do a solid back for the company. This could be a little bit of that. Either way, you got to expect fireworks here. I think the big question here, though, Luke, is Benoit ready for all the fire, the ghost pepper fire that this hot sauce Louisianian has to offer? Because every time I think Poirier may have taken too much damage, maybe too vulnerable, he comes out with the type of performances he did, like the one against Chandler, and I shut the hell up and move on, Luke. Yeah, you know, here's what I think it would have been more interesting. It would have been a Dan Hooker rematch, but Hooker is injured, so you can't do that. I honestly feel like BC. You're asking about whether Benoit Saint Denis is ready. Maybe I guess. Well, I guess you know that is sort of the 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 operative question here. But if I'm thinking about like why Poirier took this, obviously Gamrot trains at ATT and then already had a 299 fight locked up. But again, they could have moved that around if they had wanted to. It's just because I think the guy will 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 bang with him. Honestly, right? Isn't it as simple as that? Like you just know if you're Dustin Poirier, what kind of fight are you walking into? If you're going to give somebody an opportunity who's ranked outside of the top 10, again, very rare for someone outside the top five to give someone outside of the top 10 a shot. Uh, it's going to be have to be because you really believe either you have to take this fight or stylistically it's the kind of fight that you would want. And I think, again, this speaks to what the fans' advantage is in all of this. You're asking how the fight might go and whether Benoit Saint-Denis is ready. I mean, here's the thing, dude. Again, some of this is numerically overstated, some of it, but not all of it. He does take punches a little bit too easily for me. Dustin is, has a great jab. I think that's going to give him some problems. Wrestling could become a part of it if he wants to mix it up. I still might favor Poirier to win, even though I recognize, dude, the wind at this stage of his career is not at his back at 35, which he will be by the time this fight takes place, coming off of a head kick KO. Um, it's the headwinds are right in front of him at this point, unfortunately, but I do, I do like his chance to win here and I'd be curious to see what the odds are when they eventually come out. Indeed, Luke, this is a good ass fight. And I got to say for all the fear, you know, we've been through the exercises of trying to create a UFC 300 
We got laughed at for our matchmaking skills, though, Luke. I'll stand behind my fight, my main card every day of the week. All you GSP is 42 Dude, haters out there. But all, 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 the, all the people who were bagging on my card, it's like, I don't want to see Tom Aspinall versus uh, Pereira either. I'm not interested in that. Guys, I'm just doing a head count. Who's available? Yeah. There aren't good names. Like, is that my number one way of doing this? No, but given who's available, I don't know what people are expecting, but okay. Yeah, so I, I have to be excited, though, Luke, that this 2024 is looking strong, and this is a very strong string of announcements, not just Poirier BSD, but how about topic number two, Luke? I like that fight even more. In fact, right. a let's lot get, more. All right, so let's get into topic number two then as it stands. So we mentioned there were two announcements that Dana White had made. The first one, of course, is, as we just indicated, Poirier versus Benoit Saint-Denis. Topic number two is the other announcement that he made. Now, unlike Poirier Saint-Denis, which was a case where we knew it was the co-main and we knew it was going to be for five rounds, we don't necessarily have that here. We have not actually been told where on the card it is going, which to me, BC, is actually very interesting because it could change the way you think about this if it ends up being three versus five, they didn't indicate what it was going to be in this case. But Armin Saryukian is going to take on a UFC 300, Charles Oliveira. Damn. Charles Oliveira versus Armin Saryukian. BC, my question to you is very simple. Is this not exactly the right fight to make, not just for this card to give it some nice, uh, real hardcore fan oomph, but it's the right fight for lightweight, it's the right fight for Saryukian, and I love this fight for Oliveira as well. Tell me, what about this fight at this moment on that card could possibly suck? What am I missing here? Uh, you're not missing anything. The only thing we were missing was we weren't speculating over this fight because I think in a lot of ways, we were trying to figure out which one of these two would be fighting Islam next. I mean, you could have jumped the queue with Saryukian because of how dominant and strong he looked in his most recent fight, an absolute breakthrough knockout performance against uh, Darius there. You can see in the picture, Luke, but this guy absolutely looks like a title contender in waiting on the rise. Like he's figured it out. I thought there was a chance he could cut the line to fight Mahachev. You rightfully, when I put up my mock card, we're like, hold on. We got Ramadan coming up. We're not even sure Islam is going to fight at 300. And I do think this announcement really shows the cards in that direction. So how about they fight one another? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense when you look at the rankings right now. Islam, the champion, Charles, number one, Saryukian, number four, and you've got Gaethje and Poirier at two and three, as you mentioned earlier. So, Luke, I, and I got to believe the MMA audience will echo this, love the crap out of this fight. And you mentioned the possibility, we don't know yet, where will it fit on the card? What will it be? I know there's been some talk of late about the idea of making all potential number one contender fights five-round fights. To me, this is an absolute number one contender fight. One versus four. Both guys uh, really on the verge of busting through. Let's make it a five-round fight, even if it's a second or third fight on the card, because we have to find out exactly who Saryukian is. He turned a corner with that big knockout, and the and the, really the totality of that performance, very demonstrably coming after it and putting the skills together. Well, the champion used to have a name. He thinks that name is going to be wearing the belt again. Anyone that saw him against Darius has to believe what they saw right there. That's why I assumed that he would be getting Islam next. But with the, the schedule constraints, with the potential of Ramadan there, putting these two against each other is insane. It is a great fight. Um, 
it reminds you how great this lightweight division is, can be, even as it's in the process of sort of cycling out the old and welcoming in the new. This is a perfect example of that matchup, being that Oliveira is still maybe more of the younger of the older group. And then you have Saryukian right here, right now, looking to get that title shot, looking to get that rematch mm. against the champion. But if he it really is the big hulking slugger that he showed to be last fight, this does add a new wrinkle. You're never going to not be vulnerable potentially against the two-way finishing ability of the greatest finisher in UFC history and Charles Oliveira. But I think feel like Saryukian is entering this fight at the right time with the right level of confidence, with the right type of fights in which he learned and grew along the way to get here. Dude, this is going to be absolute fire. Uh, I hope it's very high up on the card because it deserves to be. And what do you think about that idea, Luke? Let's just go five rounds mostly because I think we want to see if Saryukian's there. Because if he wins this, he's going to be getting the title shot. So let's find out right now where that gas tank is. Yeah, this is the only issue with the five-round thing. And I know I've had a card where you could potentially have all championship fights. I'm assuming that they won't do that. I hope that they won't do that. I'm merely creating some options for the fans to pick from. Because the problem is if you have two or three title fights, then you can't have anything else on there that's going to be five rounds without running over your potential pay-per-view time. Now, um, I guess with the ESPN the situation, maybe that perhaps now that, that is different. I don't really know. That used to be a huge problem that would limit it. So I don't know exactly. You start earlier. All right. How about we just start early? Like, Luke, I, can I, I say something here? This isn't Please. old man, East Coast, 45 year old dad necessarily, even though, yeah, every year it's getting harder and harder to be spry and alert at 1.30 a.m. when I'm writing, you know, post-fight recaps and doing podcasts. Oh, woe is me. But everyone is saying, Luke, on the boxing side, a lot of smart pundits. Oh, let's be careful about letting Saudi Arabia become the next Las Vegas because how big could these fights be if they're all running in the afternoon in the U.S. on a Saturday late, you know, dinner time? Um, I actually think they can be even bigger. I don't know where, Luke, it was decided at one point that big-time boxing and MMA pay-per-views have to peak and close out with the main event on the East Coast time after midnight and sometimes even later. Look, if we start going in the direction of pleasing the potential largest fan base possible, I get there are certain parameters for both combat sports entities when you're going up against college football in the fall. Boxing always tends to try to program around that. I understand that. But in general, Luke, I'd actually support more main events that are going off at 6.30 p.m. Eastern, or in this case, talking about a potential of a UFC main card with many five-round fights. I get it. Nobody wants a marathon six-hour fight card, but even just starting an hour, 90 minutes early. Could that hurt? Does that hurt at all, Luke? Why does it have to be this way? I mean, there are what is there's like double the amount of people that live on the East Coast than it is on the West Coast. There is an East Coast bias. It's population-based, okay? Can we try to help out some of these old brothers on this side of the line, Luke? Why can't we do that time? Why can't the biggest fight? Because whenever it's Anthony Joshua in the Middle East or in the UK going off at five, dude, Twitter's on fire. Everybody's mm -hmm. awake and ready and watching no matter where they live. Twitter's not America, though. Twitter is very, uh, very unrepresentative. All right, but uh, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a shot went out for the old guys out there, the people like Eric Raskin. I'm you know, with people you. Like me, or heating up coffee at you know 10:30 p.m. on a Saturday night, trying to stay with it. Look, but do you actually do you agree at all whether whether it's boxing or MMA? We've seen going to the Middle East. We've seen sometimes these late afternoon start times or whatever. I, I think the main card probably starts sometimes noon Eastern, which is what 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, not ideal. But what about the idea of more people being awake and alert and maybe seeing on social media the buzz that's going on and wanting to buy in and watch? I just I'm no longer willing to believe that the later we push this, the more the audience broadens. 
I'm with you that like when these things end at 1:30. I can't actually believe that this is maximizing audiences. I just don't really understand that. But the UFC, I, I do. I remember distinctly when they're like, okay, we're gonna now have 9 p.m. start times for our pay-per-views. They did it one time, I think, maybe one or two times, and they're like, yeah, fuck this, we're not doing it anymore. I guess it had messed with their numbers. But I don't know, BC, like we're in a bit of a different age now where, to your point, people watch a lot of European f sports, uh, and obviously the Middle Eastern time zones are roughly approximate with some of those as well. And so you're just getting kind of accustomed to watching sports when they happen as opposed to like everyone's at home on Saturday night or or in the bars, and well, they are in the bars on Saturday night. But I guess that's part of it, BC. Maybe there's a there's the the commercial component, right, about maximizing your sales in those particular dimensions. I, I, other than that, I don't really know why you couldn't start. Yeah, earlier. unless the uh, argument is we don't want to go directly up against the Saturday night eight p.m. college football, you know, two versus four matchup. I get that. I get that. Outside of that argument, I don't get it. That's that's where I'm I don't think they're that. too worried about spring football. I can tell you that that ain't gonna that ain't gonna slow them down. But BC, getting back to this point, I want to throw you one more little detail. I'm looking at some of the odds. Now, they've barely started to trickle out for this fight. Soryukin versus Oliveira. How about this one? Here's one of some places that I'm seeing. Our friends over at DraftKings haven't, excuse me, our friends over at, excuse me, uh, FanDuel haven't got one ready yet. But I'm seeing one place has it at minus 166, plus 140. The minus 166 would be for Soryukin. Whoa. Are you surprised to hear that? Shocked shocked because i look at mm. this as the right fight to make a fight that's about finding out exactly who saryukian is can he carry the momentum of the, the way that he executed and won his last fight is he really that guy or was that the perfect night the right matchup all of that dude i still think Oliveira has you know way more ways to win this fight has the experience and savvy and hasn't yet reached that point where i feel like the mileage the tough matchups the crazy style which i always questioned Long-term, could that lead him to a long title reign? I don't know. How, I don't think he's there yet where I'm fully questioning it. How do you explain that, Luke? Because outside of the idea of him landing that one big punch, which is very real against somebody dangerous like Oliveira, who can sometimes leave himself open by pushing that pressure on you. I don't know, dude. I was thinking more like minus 250 in favor of Oliveira. Now, also, people think I'm an absolute idiot, Luke, and we do have to remember when I when I tried to make my own line for that Mackenzie Dern fight. I get it, Luke. I missed it. Okay, I'm not, you know, I missed it this morning with my HDMI What did you say? Cable. It was like okay. minus 400 in favor of Dern? Something like that? Well, did we not see what who uh, who Andrade was before that, dude? I didn't think Dern was going to fall off the hill and get rid of Perillo and go in the direction she's going completely. I'll eat that that's loss, fair. okay? That's I'll, that's I'll regurgitate it and eat it back up like my dog in the backyard. Like, yeah, no like Barbas did this morning. That's sick. No fuck. problem at all with that. But explain to me why the Armenian Hulk, who you have started st right during his rise, you've started to turn your back on him, you motherfucker. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit questioning him. I, I would say I'm actually a little bit surprised by this, but not to the same extent that you are. I would have had it slightly reversed. And by the way, these are the opening lines. Who is to say what it will end up being by the time the fight rolls around in April? Again, this is for UFC 300. But I do think it's approximately that close, BC. I mean, this is why this fight is so tremendous. Saryukian, obviously the younger of the two, uh, Oliveira the more battle-tested of the two, both of them coming off of stoppage wins over Benil Darius. You could argue that Saryukian's was better, but it came second, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But Saryukian, not as polished as a finisher, not as polished as a competitor, but a phenomenal athlete, an outstanding grappler, a real go-getter, just has a certain kind of verve that these young guys in their mid to late 20s 
tend to have. Oliveira, a guy who's made a million mistakes and then come out the other end, as you indicated, the best finisher in UFC history, one of the best finishers in all of MMA history, irrespective of weight class, and looking for that second opportunity to go up against a guy like Islam Makachev. Also, I'll point out, you see, both of these guys have a history with Islam, right? Both of them fought, and it was actually Saryukian who gave Islam a much tougher fight than Charles Oliveira did, but we're not playing MMA math with this. The point I wanted to make was you've got this like raw physical force that's starting to get molded into something sharper, but still I think has a ways to go in Saryukian versus a guy who has done that process, but now the question is, is the game going to catch up with him? Is the next generation going to going to rise? Are they? Are, is that going to be too much even for a guy who has shown that kind of a polish? One point I want to make, and it comes back to this Volkanovsky argument that we have a lot. I don't know what's going to happen when he fights Taporia. Maybe he goes in there and schools him. Maybe he gets viciously KO'd. The, the future is quite literally unknowable. But one thing that does kind of bother me a little bit is people don't respect how, typically, how short. Uh, like, like the, speaking of the greatest rapper of all time dying on March 9th, the rain at the top was short like leprechauns. Dude, these guys... They do not last at the top very, very long. It is very, especially at 155. It is very, very difficult to do. And one thing I think, I think with Volkanovski, one thing I've kind of wondered is maybe that people missed the early rise and now they want to get onto it and it might be too late. We shall see. In the case of Oliveira, I don't feel exactly that same kind of way. But at the same time, this division is so unforgiving. Saryukian, to the point you raised, BC, rapidly getting better fight over fight. There was a point where he was kind of stalling out a little bit, but that does not appear to be the case anymore. And I just want folks to accept something a little bit. Maybe maybe Oliveira goes in there and chokes him out in like inside of two rounds. You'd be like, oh, right, it's Oliveira. He does that to basically just about everybody. On the other hand, if he goes in there and gets you know crushed in the end, it is a reminder that, th that no matter how good you are, you can literally be the very best finisher the ultimate fighting championship has ever seen. Your ability to stay on top in this game is super, super, super narrow. Just want to remind folks of that. Yeah, and it, it it's a constant refreshing uh, you know, wake-up call every time that we question odds in this case or every time we think that the older fighter has that one more you know, great, great performance left and they get humbled. But like the great ones like Aporia, for example, can constantly reevaluate, constantly rebound. That has been a big part of Oliveira's reputation, that ability to do that, switching weight classes and finding that full potential. I just don't think he's done yet. I mean, is it does this, does this line play into, did he pull out of his last fight? Look, I'm trying to remember recent history. I'm better, like, you know, I've got better long He was supposed memory. to fight at Fight Island and then, and then, uh, uh, withdrew, if I'm not mistaken. Let me talk yeah, about Oliveira, I, yes? I want to remind myself of the exact details of that. I'm wondering if the line is playing into that at all, or maybe it's just the momentum that oh. Sarukian's brought to the table. That's an interesting thing. All right, so remember, he was scheduled to face Benil Dariush at May 6th at 288. However, he was forced out of the bout due to an injury, and it was postponed until 289. He won the bout via technical knockout 288. You might recall, BC, uh, this was the one that was in Newark. Was that right? And then he was scheduled to book Islam in the rematch. That's right, at 294. However, he was forced off the event due to injuries and was replaced by Volkanovski. That's how Volk, Olive, excuse me, that's how Volk Islam 2 came to be. Yeah. And so yeah. now he's kind of having to prove it again, right? Absolutely. The hardest way possible. But that's sometimes what happens. It's not always be a famous name, lose your title, get one big win, which he did against Dariush. And then in his case, he did get the title opportunity, lost it. Not fully his fault. That's the game. We'll see if he wins it. He's right back in there. You'd have to think again, either guy 
will win this. You get that rematch against the champ. Quickly to close out the actual champion here, Islam Mahachev, this probably means he's made the decision to wait through Ramadan and then look to book a big fight after. But how fully confident? I mean, they're not going to F around and, and announce him against Leon Edwards for the UFC 300 main event, right? Right, Luke? Right? Okay, here's here's my best guess. My best guess is... Ooh. Probably not. Probably not. I don't think so. Um, but I, I wouldn't rule it out completely. That's the way I, I, I... If I had a real strong vibe, I'd tell you. They're running out of options. I mean, we've done this exercise multiple times trying to draft up a card. But seriously, right now, what is the main event? If it's not, if Islam's off the table, because if you remember, whether you liked my GSP comeback or not, I thought Charles versus Islam 2 was a strong UFC 300 main event. Until again, your Ramadan comments really, really put me back in my place and put that white belt, you know, like a headband around my, my head here. But like, is it Aspinall against anyone? Is it... I mean, what the hell is it, dude? What is it? The hell's going to be the main and co-main of 300? I have no idea. I don't know. And I again, I'm, I said at the top of the show, I really, truly, absolutely wonder if 299 is going to be better. I was looking it up. UFC 99 was like in Cologne, Germany. It was some nubs card. It was not better than 100. 199 did have the magic of Michael Bisping beating yeah. Rockhold, but as a card was not better than 200, even but though 200 fell have... apart in the end. Faber Cruz three, which I know wasn't overly exciting, but it was a big matchup. And then it did have the final 10 seconds of Max Holloway versus Ricardo Lamas, Luke, which was, you know, yes. right here, right now. Let's go. Yeah. Dude, but that was a heading into it, you didn't there. know that it was going to produce that kind of magic. No, I'm just no, saying that, that's still one of the best UFC crowds I've ever heard in person. That LA crowd that night at the forum. It was also the night with the Brock Lesnar announcement, Ariel getting booted. I mean, it was a wild night on the job, Luke, but that yes. was a, an, an electric crowd that night that, Went nuts when Bisping pulled that upset. No, I'll never forget the goosebumps. A lot of goosebumps coming up and down on the arms. Yeah, know? fair enough. But this is the point I'm trying to make is like on paper, I've never seen something quite like what 299 appears to be in relative to the one that's supposed to be bigger than the next one. 299 is like stacked, stacked. It's like, I don't know what's going to be on 300, but like even if 300 is stacked, BC, like 301 and 302 are going to suck. Because there's nothing left. They're going to like completely clean out the cupboard to make 299 and 300 great. After that, you're going to have a bit of a downtime in the sport. Okay, neither here nor there. BC, let's talk about topic number three. And this was really one of the biggest things that had happened over the weekend in combat sports. I think it was on Friday, perhaps, right after the show. There was an announcement, news broke, excuse me, from Ariel Hawani. And then it was corroborated in other places Francis Ngannou, we're not totally sure on the date, maybe March 8th. Well, I guess we'll see. There's supposed to be a press conference in London this week where we'll get some more answers from this. But Francis Ngannou has headed back to the boxing ring, and he's Ooh. going to be taking on Anthony Joshua. Yes, Anthony Joshua, AJ. It'll be in Saudi Arabia. It'll be on pay-per-view. We don't know the rest of the card, although we believe, BC, Deontay Wilder could be a part of that card, some other names as well. Jean we'll figure Jolet, that all yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. But let me ask you this. What is the significance and relevance of Francis Ngannou versus Anthony Joshua in 2024? Even though it still has on the surface an undeniable element of crossover of boxing versus MMA, which, which means kind of like gimmick, it's not a gimmick fight anymore. I don't know if Francis Ngannou is as good as that performance he had against Tyson Fury over the fall, but because of that performance, 
he has not only put himself in Ganu in the driver's seat to potentially be the the, the most well-paid fighter in combat sports over, over a one-year period. Like when you're gonna fight in Saudi Arabia multiple times and be featured against the you know some of the most famous boxers on the planet, you'll get that. But even more than that, even more than gimmick, even more than once again in Ganu not fumbling the bag. I mean, what a it's it's comical. It's comical now, right? Even more than that. Francis Ngannou is a viable heavyweight championship contender. And what is crazy about really combat sports in general, where you're only as good as your last performance, heavyweight boxing in general, which can be so, you know, the trends can go dramatically in other direct, any direction because the, the fights can change by one punch in a more dramatic way than any other weight class. If this fight had been booked immediately, let's say if this fight had been booked a year ago, last summer, we would have been like, okay, AJ, you know, it's going to be a minus 1,000 favorite. We'll see if Ngannou can last four rounds. If this fight was booked immediately after Ngannou Fury, when AJ's reputation was now down, despite coming off of a two-white fight win streak, we may have saw Ngannou being the favorite from some people. But I think the best-case scenario did happen. AJ redeemed himself against Otto Valin on December 23rd and now looks to be back in the mix. And Ngannou very much is in the mix because of that performance, knocking down Tyson Fury, losing by split decision in their non-title but very real fight. So what's the significance of here? The winner is going to have a huge shot at potentially fighting for the undisputed championship of the world. Not a non-title one because this is a gimmick fight and we want to see what Ngannou has. If Ngannou goes in there and wins, he literally could be fighting the winner of Fury versus Usyk or the winner of Fury versus Usyk too. I did mention that I thought Anthony Joshua would be more likely to maybe chase Philip Ergovich to get that world title to put himself in a comfortable negotiating spot to fight the winner of those fights. But when you've got an opportunity to fight Ngannou for the type of money that I assume they're going to be paid, um, this fight matters on so many different levels, including the PFL, which we'll get to in a second. But if you're looking just at boxing, Luke, where was the understanding of what Francis Ngannou can do in this heavyweight division before the Fury fight, as opposed to where it is now? This is not crazy talk, right? Until we see him fight a second time and, and maybe look as bad as Wilder just did against Joseph Parker. As of right now, Monday, January 8th, 2024, Francis Ngannou off one fight is a legit heavyweight title challenger. And that's what makes this the greatest story combat sports has seen in in decades in a long ass time i can't believe it but i'm actually happier luke that aj is refreshed too because this fight we have no idea what to expect and i think that's always exciting especially in a heavyweight fight where anything can happen but there is so much money and stakes involved in this one that my head is spinning and yet we're going to see it and according to the rumors they might do it on that friday the day before the ufc pay-per-view so this this first couple months in combat sports is going to be insane. Look, this is arguably the biggest fight of the first couple months of combat sports. Seriously, what's a, I'm shaking posters over here with except what's a bigger fight? What's going to draw more of a casual look in, whether they're paying or, or illegally searching? I feel like this one because that performance from Ngannou changed the scales. It changed what's possible. It changed how we look at things. Is it one special man who had one special night or is this special man about to, about to F things up in heavyweight boxing? Well, we're going to find out. And Luke, you could tell me five different outcomes. 
I don't know which outcome to believe. I mean, could, could he go in there and get outclassed and knocked out by AJ? Could he go in there and give AJ legitimate troubles and drop him like he did Fury? I don't know, but I got to see this shit. And now that we're talking about the title implications, big, 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 big deal here. Big deal. Big BC, deal. BC, uh, our friends at FanDuel have the odds currently, and again, this will move over time. They have Anthony Joshua minus 650, Francis Ngannou plus 440. What do you think? Okay, that's interesting because – what I would that's believe about, that's, is, that's not crazy to me. That's not crazy okay, at all. What I would believe is fueling the line to have AJ as such a big favorite would be the destruction he put on Valine, the intention, everything like that. That's the exact old school remind you, remind us who you still are performance. But even if he brings that performance to Nganu, what's the biggest shock factor Nganu gave Fury? It was, I don't think it was maybe Fury was out of shape and overlooking him. I think it was how fast, accurate, and powerful the power, the, the counter punches of Nganu were. He was sitting back almost waiting for Fury to come after him, but his ability in that pocket to come in and counter just lightning fast and unorthodox ways, but with the power that moves you. I'm wondering if you're Anthony Joshua, if you're starting to question, can I walk this guy down like I did Valin? I'm not really sure. And it all plays back to that question, Luke, of, is Nganu as good as that performance against Fury showed, or was it the perfect night, the perfect Rocky against Apollo moment? I don't have that answer. So I don't even know if AJ's plan A is the right plan A against a guy that potentially dangerous, which is hmm. crazy as the boxing guy. It's freaking crazy that I'm telling you this, that I'm like, well, dude, gotta watch out for that Nganu counter shot. What? That's crazy. I know. Luke. We have another question about, about Francis. We're going to get to in a moment. That's related to the MMA side of things, but let's keep it on the boxing side. For just the moment, BC, I went and I looked to see what, like, you know, Jake Donovan and Keith Idek and Chris Mannix and Dan Raphael and, like, all these other guys who are, if you don't know, if you're an MMA fan, you don't know who these names are. These are some of the bigger, or I, or I would say the ones that I look to in boxing for their coverage. And I, I was curious to see what they said. And they all seem to not either be against it or to be generally supportive of it. In the sense that one, Nganu earned their respect. I mean, let me explain something to you. To earn the respect of boxing diehards, very difficult to do, right? Trust me, I've been yeah. trying for four years. It's not easy. It's very, very difficult to do. And Francis went in there even in a losing effort and was able to do that at a bare minimum. Number two, BC, no one really seems to think that whatever happens on March 8th, depending on what day this fight takes place, that it will derail Anthony Joshua from what other boxing responsibilities or you know, more traditional fights he could be taking in 2024. No one seems to think that this will get in the way. Now, we could see that it might potentially. There are ways where it could. If somehow Francis scores a thunderous KO, that could really be disruptive. But in general, they view it as a fight that Anthony Joshua should probably win. Uh, it doesn't disrupt the, you know, the more or less typical boxing calendar. And they have respect for Nganu for earning his opportunity both in terms of the promotional side, but then also through his performance against Fury in being able to to take advantage of windfalls, cash windfalls and opportunities like this. Like the, even they weren't really against it. And then to me, that was a big difference. Like what you saw the first time Francis fought on the boxing crowd was, you know, begrudging respect potentially, but a lot of hand wringing about what is this and blah, 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 and waste of time and everything in between. Dude, you don't see any of that hardly this time. Very, very, very little. He has massively changed the narrative. So the significance, BC, for me, and I wonder if you disagree, is really whatever Francis makes it. I mean, the thing about Francis to me that's really incredible about all of this, BC, is how much his actions and choices 
end up just defining reality. Because we go into all of these things and we're like, oh, well, this can't happen and this is not possible. And okay, maybe this could happen, but not this. And then Francis just keeps doing things that shatter it over and over and over again. To me, BC, if he goes there and looks like Deontay Wilder did in his last fight, then, you know, maybe it is a waste of time. But if he goes in there and knocks down Anthony Joshua, if he brutally KOs him, which I don't think is likely, but again, who the fuck knows anymore? Knows? If he goes and yeah. does that, right? He will completely define the significance of this through his performance, which is a really unusual thing to say for a boxer 0-1 and more to the point for a guy coming from MMA. I mean, this is all so unusual, but he gets to decide exactly what this means in the end. Well, he also gets to decide reputationally how we're going to remember the stretch. And what I mean by that is, Wherever you stand on the, you know, Francis versus Dana sort of argument, you know, and where you're saying, well, look, good for Francis to get free because of where fighter pays at and all the hoops you have to jump through and how he was treated. Or you could be on the other side and say, hey, Francis, congratulations, but you could easily just sign to fight John and put your legacy first and all that. And there are a lot of UFC fans that are saying that. But what has happened since Francis has left the UFC? Dana and company have gone like to aggressive odds to disparage or maybe just Dana. I don't mean to say and company but aggressively disparaging him. What do I mean? That lower third graphic that time that another Cameroonian fighter was walking to the cage. Okay, maybe that was one mistake, one PA or whatever. Okay, not even talking about Francis not having Dana put the belt around his waist after beating God. How about just every time Dana's talking, and I've seen Ariel replaying a lot of these post-press conference rants that are now hilariously you know, becoming untrue, but it was all painted as, this won't work, you've screwed up, you fumbled the bag, uh, and Ganu's never, I'm sorry, Joshua's never going to want to fight you. He thinks it's a gimmick fight, which is, that was the comment that started a, uh, you know, Francis to start his own gimmick promotion, which was humorous. But look, each step of the way as Francis was not only getting defamed by his ex-boss, which was in a lot of ways resetting the public narrative in a negative way, he didn't overly fight it. He didn't come back petty against Dana and, and talk trash in return. Yeah, there's a couple interviews where Francis was just like, I don't understand why this guy hates me this much that he's trying so hard to get in the way of me. But let's also be honest about a couple of things that happened to Francis. Anytime he has good news, including the, this one, Dana's right around the corner with some really big news to try to draw it out. Oh, and let's not forget what happened a couple months ago when Dana publicly tried to get Tyson Fury to box John Jones in some kind of weird hybrid fight. Why? Because suddenly the UFC's into these gimmick fights that we don't do in this corporation. No, just to stiff arm Francis and keep him away from potentially getting money. And it's, I don't think it's really about we hate this man, Francis. To me, it's always been more about this guy crawled through the Shawshank hole. We need him as an organization, UFC, for him to fail so that it proves to other fighters that this can't be done. I get it's probably more of that. But each time Francis could have come back and been just as petty or tried to out dirty them. But instead, he largely let his actions speak for him. And what have his actions done? They've created sort of a limitless short season of money opportunities for him in, across two different sports involving Saudi Arabia. It also has made him, like I said, a legitimate heavyweight title contender. Like this whole season could not have gone in the end better for Francis. He's got this giant PFL contract that he can activate and step in when he wants to. He's got almost like ownership capabilities there as like overseeing PFL Africa, if that ever becomes a thing. Oh, he also has the freedom in his contract to piecemeal these opportunities. And I want to remind people, it's like, there's, there's extremes. I think some people are going too extreme by saying matter of fact, 
Ngannou got screwed. He should have beaten Fury in that split decision, and he should have gotten a title shot right after. Again, I'm an old-school purist. I understand how boxing rounds are really scored. Great performance by Francis. He didn't get the win. But this wasn't a Chuck Webner-style knockdown of Muhammad Ali, which, by the way, was the fuel for the Rocky Balboa, uh, for Rocky One's uh, screenplay that that uh, Sylvester Stallone put together watching it. And that fight, Webner was just getting beat up. He was down on the cards. He stepped on Ali's ankle, and he, and he kind of briefly knocked him down. This was Ngannou in control, arguing, arguably having the fight direction in control by flooring and worrying Fury. So he's very much in this. But Luke, he could have responded as petty as possible to Dana. Yet all he's doing is going back to work, living out his dreams. And the the wave of inspiration that's coming out of this is massive, not just for donks in my basement like me, who's going, damn, I could maybe I should get in the best shape of my life. Look at what Francis is doing. Maybe I should rethink my goals. But I wonder, Luke, the UFC's biggest nightmare how much this success by this alien Francis is waking up some of the stars across the street and realizing like, okay, maybe we can't do exactly what Francis did. Maybe nobody can, but I have to think there's some fallout from that Luke, because this is going too well for Francis. He earned it. He deserves it, but everything is coming out in Ghana one after another. He deserves it. I just wondering what the real ripple effect will be. I don't know yet. So then let's get to topic four here. If we can, which is related to this one, which is, very basic question, BC. Very basic. Is Francis Ngannou going to fight MMA ever again? I say yes because I feel like he will be an honorable businessman. He knows what PFL did in putting really so much across the table in his in his lot, saying, okay, whatever you want. You want to be part owner. You want to be ahead at the table to represent the athletes. You want big money. You want all these things. And to Francis's credit, I do think he has tried to not abuse the relationship. He tried to set in that his opponents would make a certain amount of money so he's not looked at as somebody who's just coming through and cashing out. But you ask an important question, because if you go back to that Don Davis interview with Ariel at the MMA Hour, it was the idea of they needed Francis for their first quarter pay-per-view as much as they seem to need Jake Paul for their second quarter one to close the year. I'm going to say yes, Luke, because I think he will honor his contract. And I do think he will go the lengths of making an appearance in PFL this calendar year. Yes. I just don't know when anymore. And I have to believe that this is potentially quite, you know, not damaging, but potentially a problem for PFL in terms of them wanting to put their chess pieces in play and roll out this year. But if he loses this fight, could you see him going back into MMA three, three, four months from now? Probably, right? The real question comes down to if he wins it. Because, Luke, if he does win it, you will have gone from, like, possible, interesting, weird, one-night-only title contender to, like, a threat to the undisputed championship. I mean, he could go to China and fight Zhang Jilei for that secondary belt. He could whatever, you know, he could fight the winner of Fury Usyk. There's so many ways. It's going to make it really hard if he beats Anthony Joshua. But I still think he will be a man of his word. He will take an MMA fight this calendar year. I think the question now becomes, how damaging will it be for PFL if that one appearance ends up being sort of forced or an afterthought or they can't get the right opponent? Arguments we always had from the beginning of when this deal was announced. But I cannot imagine that Don Davis and company are sitting at the PFL headquarters you know, with their arms around the edge of the smart cage going, hey, this is a great development for us. Let's see what happens. No, Luke, this is potentially really bad for them business-wise. Uh, I'll say this. Does he fight MMA ever again? 
Well, that's a big ever. I mean, if he keeps fighting for, let's say, BC four more years, maybe even more than that, he probably does fight MMA again. The question is, does he fight MMA anytime soon? And to that one, I'm going to say probably not. Now, BC has made the argument, and I don't think it's a bad one at all, that, like, listen, it depends what happens with the Joshua fight. Uh, if he loses, then he probably goes and fights in the PFL. I am not convinced by that, at least not yet. I am much more convinced by the, by the idea that whatever happens, even if he loses, the question is, what are his most lucrative, realistic options afterwards? So let me give you an example. Let's say he goes in there and he fights Anthony Joshua and knocks Anthony Joshua down, but also loses another decision. You still have the Deontay Wilder fight still out there looming. You have a potential Tyson Fury rematch potentially out there looming, but maybe depending on what happens, they might want to do the Joshua fight back to back. I don't think that one is necessarily the likeliest of the two, but the Wilder one is still looming out there. See, we're so used to MMA fighters who get one opportunity to box as just that one. Tyron Woodley was able to get two kind of by accident in the end, but in general, you get one, and if you're lucky, you get a rematch. We've never seen a guy not just get a big boxing fight, but then create runway for many, many, many more potential opportunities. I actually don't think it matters if he loses. I think only what matters is, is a Deontay Wilder fight realistic and do people want it? That's one option or whatever the PFL has. Whatever the PFL has, has nothing on that. It cannot compete with that. Folks, I'm going to keep saying this until everyone understands. It is not possible for any MMA entity to compete with the UFC until there is either a mass defection, which I don't view as likely, or some other kind of force of law, a law gets passed from Congress, um, there is some kind of ruling in a court case, whatever, that makes it possible to compete. It cannot happen. And so the reason why Francis is pursuing these boxing opportunities, yes, is it a lot of money? Of course. Are there big names? Of course. But the opponents in that world have the freedom to move around and pick and choose. In MMA, they are all locked under contract. They have nowhere to go. They cannot go. Their free agency is either minimized or outright eliminated. And there are no good options for that. BC, I'll say this. What could be kind of interesting, and we both know it's probably, you know, the likelihood of it happening is low. But if folks really want to see Francis compete in MMA, there is always the possibility of co-promotion. I know that people don't like it when I say that because, like, oh, that's not realistic. First of all, we're talking about Francis Ngannou. Anything is realistic with Francis, it seems, right? That's the first thing. But the other part here is this is what I'm trying to drive at. Why would you try to compete in an industry where you have a promoter who's going to take some of your money, you have no one to fight versus an industry where it might be hard to get wins, but at least in the short term, it's not hard to get enormous paychecks and it's not hard to get big name opponents, relatively speaking. what There is no choice. This is the way that it works now for him by virtue of how the market dynamics are in play and then what he's been able to do for himself. So will he fight in 2024 in the PFLBC? Color me as no to that answer. I don't think that yeah, he Yeah, I think he no. has to. I think seriously, just to keep up his end of the bargain, to look good, to not come under unnecessary you know, downfall publicly, I think he will give them their one performance. My question is, if that one performance comes in December, how much momentum will they have lost with that signing that he, you know, he's been out of, but look, if he doesn't fight, if he doesn't fight by the fourth quarter in MMA, he'll have been out of the sport for like two and a half, three years, right? I mean, it is, it is getting to a certain point there, but um, real quickly, 
I do wonder, the timing was perfect for Francis. If Saudi was not here at the level of investment they are, particularly in the heavyweight division, where they are, they're really paying stupid money for these. They're making Eddie Hearn and, and uh, Frank Warren come together like they've been best buds their whole lives and not rivals. Um, I wonder if he would have had the leverage to pick up these many bags and not fumble them across the across the globe. Either way, perfect timing. It's worked. This Francis story is is it's incredible. I, I cannot believe it. And I, I'm last I'm, last I'm, last thing on this. I, can't I know it. some folks thought that like, oh, what what did he make in his last fight? I I heard some numbers, folks, that oh, it could be ten million. He made much more than ten million, but let's just say it's ten million because that is what he would have made if he had fought John Jones in the UFC. But for what folks don't realize is any subsequent bout to that, the amount was going to be much less in the UFC. BC, what is he going to make for this Anthony Joshua fight? $20 million? $25 million? Uh, I think it's like got to go up huge from the performance he had against Fury. Because even though you can argue that the pay-per-view buys well, that would only be a certain level because coming in, everybody maligned that fight. I think mm -hmm. the aftermath, the attention that it brought to Saudi Arabia, the attention that it brought to Francis, and now AJ is the new brand across from him. I gotta believe he's gonna make thirty to forty million, Luke. They're paying stupid, yeah. stupid amounts to get people to come there. I mean, stupid amounts. He's so in the dude, right place at the right time with the right momentum. It's insane. He is gonna pass Connor potentially in terms of the take-home pay that he got because he doesn't have to split half of it with his promoter in the end. So, yeah. I mean, I just want to point out this one more time. Like, this has worked out marvelously for. Francis Ngannou and I don't think it would work out as well to your point if there hadn't been a few other factors in play at the time in which they were in play but it is also true the ability to shop around see what your services can get on the open market on balance will probably yield a better result than just trudging and slogging through for a single promoter who makes the vast majority of the money that's going to be generated on any kind of event in which you compete all right with that in mind BC Let's now go to our next guest. I used to have this guy on my radio show relatively regularly. I haven't had him on in quite some time. He is an attorney in Canada. He's an MMA fan. He also runs a great website called CombatSportsLaw.com. His name is Eric McGracken. Let's get him on the screen now if we can. Bring in old E.M. Eminem. <clears throat> there he is. Look at this oh, attorney. Yeah. That's an attorney scowl right there. Can you hear us, Eric? Oh, we cannot hear you. I think your mic is muted. Unmute, unmute your mic. Yeah, McGracken. Let's settle this. Okay. Yeah, you know, there you go. Good? Yeah. Yes, there you go. Very good. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm good. Luke, sorry, I got this stupid microphone and it gives me problems. I had to unplug it. So we're we're good to go now. <laughs> you sound good. Don't worry about it. Before we get into the anti-doping stuff, which is why we wanted to have you on very quickly, your reaction as an observer to what Francis Ngannou has uh, pulled off with this Anthony Joshua fight. I love his whole career arc. Um, I, I think Francis was basically the biggest story of 2023, and he's carrying that into 2024. So the guy's just absolutely crushing it. Um, you know, I think his success is tied in part to what the antitrust lawsuit has been doing, and he's shown the power of free agency for MMA athletes. So, so if you're a world champion, and that's what Francis Ngannou was, and if you're not tied to a restrictive contract, the sky's the limit. And it'd be great to see other MMA world champions enjoy this kind of financial success that he's having. And the fact that he was able to go the distance and even drop Tyson Fury was just was just nuts. I mean, that was one of the wildest sports moments I've seen. And so I love that he's continuing his boxing success story. The guy, the guy's crushing it.
All right. Let's talk about this anti-doping policy that the UFC has instituted. It's their own in-house version. It bears, I would argue, a fair amount of similarities to the previous regime that they had with USADA, but of course it no longer is a third party. As I mentioned, it is now in-house. Before we get to some of the specifics that you have highlighted, give me an overview, a broad overview. We don't know everything yet. We haven't seen how some things will play out. This is very, very early, eight days into January, for crying out loud. But based on what we do know, what kind of feeling do you have about this new anti-doping program? Yeah, so you're right. It is early days. I don't even think CSAD have their website up and running, Combat Sports Anti Anti-Doping. That's the that's the new agency that George Pirro created. Um at, at first glance, it seems very similar to the old policy, but reading through the documents, there's a handful, there's a handful of different uh, um, differences. I'll give you a, I'll give you a five talking points. So first, they've compartmentalized things. So it used to be USADA, and USADA basically was judge, jury, executioner. They ran the whole thing. They collected the samples. They did the results management. They handed out the punishments. They went to arbitration if the athletes didn't accept the punishment. Now they've got different compartments doing different parts of the job. So that's one big wholesale change. The second is they've basically moved entirely. Here, let me let me rephrase that. They've, they've moved off of the WADA prohibited list. And so they've created something called the UFC prohibited list. And as far as I can tell, they basically cut and paste the WADA list, but there's one key change, which it says that with 30 days notice, the UFC unilaterally could make any changes they want to what is prohibited. So they've given themselves a whole lot of flexibility for what the prohibited substances are. And then drilling into the details, the things that jumped out to me the most is under this new policy, it looks like it's a lot easier for athletes to get a TUE, a therapeutic use exemption. It looks like it's easier for athletes who retire to return to the UFC. And and, and whether or not they were doping when they retired, the language makes it a little bit easier for them to return to the UFC. And the biggest one, I think, is the changed language when it comes to cooperation. So, so the snitching clause, if you get busted for anti-doping, but you cooperate with George Pirro, there's a lot of discretion now to reduce the punishment to, to nothing. And under the USADA system, there was a lot more required to get that leniency. So that's the that's the broad overviews. All right. Let me ask you this way. I want to, we'll get to some of the specifics of what you had mentioned. This is my personal opinion. So if you disagree, it's your personal opinion. By all means, please say so. When I look at some of these changes, I, I realize that there is basically two interpretations. One of which is, hey, they have moved everything in-house. This raises my proverbial alarm bells, my skepticism, because... Anytime any organization does that, they have a way to sort of cloak it in secrecy or some other kind of methodology to suit their own interests. And I understand that uh, concern. On the other hand, here's the way I look at it. In terms of guys who might be out for a little while, who use things that aren't strictly allowed when they're in competition for medi like genuinely medicinal purposes, um, or to get, as you indicated, a therapeutic use exemption, my view is these things actually should be a little bit easier to come by. The restrictions shouldn't be what they are. To your point about the prohibited list, being able to change it unilaterally with a 30-day notice, they should have this kind of nimbleness that allows them to address real-time 
uh, understanding of changes in science, changes in anti-doping, and frankly, add in a little bit more humanity to what the athletes want. I wouldn't call it a perfect system. I'm sure you wouldn't either. But would you share my assessment that relative to what they had with USADA, this flexibility could also be viewed as a little bit more of humanity? Yeah, there's always two sides to the coin, right? And I think I think your opening comments are the best one, which is we just have to see how this new system plays out in terms of how are the TUEs being granted? Are they being more liberal with them? Are they being consistent with them? And how are the punishments handed out as well? So we just need to see how these new players do their new job. But reading the documents, the main the main thing I can point out is there are some pretty significant differences. It's just subtle language here and there, but when you add it all up, there are fairly significant changes from the old USADA system, and and the devil's always in the details, and we just need some time to see how athletes are treated under this. Eric, there's usually smoke that starts the fire, and if the fire is UFC going to the lengths of creating this new anti-doping program, is it as easy to, to just say the smoke could be the interesting and unusual journey conor mcgregor has gone on through the ultimate fighter to sitting out all of this year and now we think we have a fight against chandler just in time it seems for this new anti-doping program but i guess really what role does conor play in his journey in what we saw because there was some unprecedented language in how he was speaking about usada and then ultimately it seemed like the ufc supported that right so so i can't speak to conor specifically but but if we speculate let's just speculate here and i'll show you guys the the language here so if you're an athlete that's under contract with the ufc and you remove yourself you retire from the sport under the usada system you had to come back for six months to be in the in the testing pool and during those six months you had to give two clean samples they removed that language now so it basically just says you have to be in the testing pool for 180 days, but it doesn't say anything about having two clean samples during those 180 days. And then moving on, there's another uh, policy that says, if you removed yourself and you were doping when you removed yourself, so whether you admitted to it or whether they believe you were doping, um, you still have to be back for 180 days, but even those athletes don't have to give two clean samples. They've made that discretionary. So it says that a known doper who's now back in the testing pool for 180 days, the administrator, so that's George Pirro, um, he has discretion about whether that athlete has to also give two clean samples during that period. So that's that's the shift of language under the new policy. And whether a specific athlete triggered that or not, I have no idea, but, but that's the new rules. I want to know what you thought, if there was any connection here between the larger collaboration of the TKO group holdings, which of course is UFC and WWE with uh, Endeavor running the whole thing. When I was a uh, fairly prominent pro wrestling journalist for about four years last decade, uh, the working theory among us as pro wrestling journalists was that the, cur that the current state of the WWE's doping program, which is the same it was then, I believe that it is now, was we all understood that the WWE had that system more to figure out who was potentially going down a different road. Obviously, WWE is scripted entertainment. It's not fighting. There was an idea that the only people that would get popped and suspended publicly was maybe they had gone too far down that road. WWE, obviously, in a situation like they had the previous decade before that with so many wrestlers dying, the Chris Benoit situation, it changed 
the level of control, the level of responsibility that the promotion would potentially have. So what we knew it then in a pro wrestling stance was they had the, the they had the doping system in there, not necessarily to make sure no one's taking PEDs, just to make sure that no one's crossing a line, going taking too much, going down a dark road. You did see big names popped out of nowhere. Would it be right for a fan, knowing that this is the new TKO era, to have the same fears that this would give UFC not just an ability to keep things under the rug, but to really be able to kind of police in a way who uses, who doesn't, and all that. I mean, I'm getting a little conspiratorial here, but if you ask me, do I believe the NFL that they're using? Of course, it's more like the users are ahead of the testers, and I would have to believe the owners, the, the league, they all know that. They want the most exciting product they can have. They don't want people popping left and right. Is there any fear here for a fan? And maybe it's not a fear, because maybe fans want this, that the UFC will have a level of control now under the shadows of this that was never there before. So, So I think... And first I'll say, I don't follow the pro wrestling world uh, much at all. So I've got, I've got some ignorance there, but I think with the consolidation under the TKO umbrella, it does make a lot of sense that they consolidate a lot of their business practices generally. So having the same model in place for one and the other does make a lot of sense just from a, just from a consistency and cost savings basis. But the main difference here uh, to counter that conspiracy is this in-house doping program is still separate from what every single athletic commission does. So if you've got a doping athlete and the UFC is protecting them, but they're going to be fighting in California or Nevada or New York or wherever, they're still going to be subject to the anti-doping protocols of those state athletic commissions. So this is, you know, there's, there's layers to the UFC anti-doping world now. And athletes, just because the UFC wants to give them a pass, if they want to give them a pass, doesn't mean that state commissions will. Uh, now, of course, the UFC self-regulates a lot of events when they go overseas. Um, and, and there's always going to be conspiracy theories, but I don't really want to speculate. Eric, okay. uh, real quickly, do we know if any of this applies to the slappers? Uh, that's, you know, I don't think so. Um, this is this is just for UFC contracted athletes. And I hate Geez, you know, if you want to push buttons, you know, you know how I feel about the slap fighting. It, it drives me nuts that state athletic commissions are legitimizing this, you know, brain injury for entertainment. Uh, but, but no, all, all I know from the little I followed it is a whole bunch of those guys flunked doping tests in Nevada. It was, it was, it was meth and all sorts of nonsense was caught in these, in these athletes in their rigorous training. So, um, but, but no, I don't think they've got an in-house doping program for those guys. I don't know though. Isn't, isn't that a little bit weird? It's like, we want these guys to be treated like not so much like UFC fighters, but we want folks to see what we have as combat sports athletes. We regulate, or we promote in this particular case, combat sports. Um, we have all of these rules put in place. We have cleaned it up. We have taken it to athletic commissions and we don't have any kind of doping controls at all. Over, I mean, again, I think the whole thing is silly to the point of dangerous, but it is weird that they don't seem to extend this doping control to that side of the street, no? Yeah, and again, just to be clear, I personally don't know if they have a private anti-doping program in, in place for these slappers or if they're just letting the commission do their thing. But you're right, there'd be a bit of hypocrisy if they if they do it for one and not the other. I just made a public records request to Nevada. I asked for every single noted injury and suspension from the slap fighters because I I haven't seen that published anywhere, but I, I've got reason to believe that 
there's a whole bunch of brain injury going on in, in those contests. And I don't like the way it's presented to the public. It's, it's basically downplayed and sugar-coated and three little slaps has, you know, less brain trauma than a thousand punches, those kinds of things. But I think, I think the end result of that is a whole lot of brain trauma with these defenseless guys getting their brains rattled around. And, and so I'm actually looking forward to digging into some of the hard data of the injuries coming out of that sport. Ooh, we you know what? While we're on this, very quickly, let me ask. The, 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 we talked about this last week, BC and I, which was this stat where, you know, recently California decided to sanction slap fighting, much to my chagrin, much to yours as well. And there was a stat that they had rolled out, which was the there are less uh, ambulance rides, essentially, to the hospital in slap than MMA. Now, you and I both know, like, there's a lot of things that that could mean that have nothing to do with health and safety. But just for the point of getting your comments here, what do you make of that? Well, well, what I'm anticipating I'm going to find from my public records request is that 100% of the slap fighting medical transports are for traumatic brain injury, as opposed to, hey, maybe the guy needs some stitches, maybe the guy busted his hand, maybe there's something wrong with the guy's foot. All sorts of injuries take people to hospital after an MMA bout, but in slap fighting, I have a feeling it's brain injury and only brain injury. Uh, when, when California approved it, what, what I didn't like is California, uh, you know, they published all the data they looked at. Well, the medical data was just a two-page letter on slap fight letterhead saying that they've got a good safety record. So it was the promoter boasting about their safety record. I didn't see any hard records speaking to it. So I'm hoping to, you know, to get to the bottom of what the actual injury rates are and what kind of injuries are coming out of it. I've, I've talked to some doctors that were concerned about the types of knockouts that they're seeing in slap fighting, that they're worse than what they're seeing in other combat sports. Um, but, but the records will speak for themselves. So I'll put those up on my site when I get them. All right. Last one for me on this very very quickly. Last one, BC, last one, last one. I promise. I promise. Which is this one. You had wrote written that the new UFC anti-doping policy has a paragraph telling courts to quote respect if it ever is the subject of litigation. And you called it bold. What is that and why is it bold? Well, so so WADA publishes the same thing. You know, I need to pull it up, but but it basically says that, hey, we've consulted with all sorts of stakeholders from around the world. And we're not here to replace criminal law. We're not here to replace civil law. We're just trying to have a very um, good anti-doping system with integrity. And we hope that that the judiciary or other people interpreting this policy could respect that. Well, the UFC just took that and boilerplate repeated it. They just, you know, they just said, hey, we're like the WADA code. So please treat this with that much respect. And, and so, yeah, I find that really bold that, uh, you know, a private multi-billion dollar uh, corporation created an in-house doping program, but they're putting it out there as if it has the uh, same global, uh, you know, I'm not sure if integrity is the right word, but but the, the layers that went into creating the WADA code and all the stakeholders that were brought together was a massive undertaking. But the UFC just basically says, hey, courts treat us the same way. So I got I got a chuckle out of the fact that they cut and paste that and are trying to have the same credibility as WADA. Interesting stuff. Eric, I got a general question that I'm interested in your thoughts. 2023 was a year in, in me covering UFC for, you know, over a decade that I can't really remember. I've been watching the sports since the beginning, like a lot of us, UFC four around there. But yet this year was dominated. I mean, look, if you said, what's the story of the year? I might say Francis Ngannou leaving the UFC 
and PFL and Bellator emerging. And that's the two things, you know, not positively evolving, involving the UFC. It's been about as weird a year I can remember in public headlines, yet it's also the 30th anniversary of this promotion in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, the sport. Uh, I didn't really come across your work until this year, seeing you comment on a lot of these things across the board. When you look at where we are outside of the sport in the ways that affect inside of it, the fighter pay. Now we're talking to you about drug testing. Power slap is being used by UFC channels and flooding our, our inboxes in so many ways. Is this a time that you think we're heading toward major, much needed change, maybe even a down period to get that change? Or is this a time that we're headed that that is, uh, I don't know, I'm getting I mean, your opinion in general, I'm interested in. Are we headed toward a dark period? Are we headed toward a bright period? I've never seen a confluence of so many forces coming together that would at the very least, with the, with the antitrust lawsuit right around the corner, question the control that the mighty UFC has had. How do you sort of feel in the overall climate as we enter this new year right now? Yeah, so I think, I think 2024 is the year of the antitrust lawsuit. It's, it's set for trial in April of this year. And win, lose, or draw, that's going to shape the future of the sport. So, so whether there's a settlement or whether they lose uh, at jury trial. And then they've got the Johnson antitrust lawsuit right after this one. So, so it's not over with, with the first antitrust lawsuit, but that could really shake things up because if the fighters get what they want, not only are there billions of dollars in back pay and damages coming the fighters way, but the, the main structural change they want are limited contracts. So if the UFC is going to have these exclusive contracts that they use, they're asking the court to give a one-year term, an injunction saying the UFC as a monopsonist can't have contracts for more than one year. And if that happens, you know, we started talking about Francis Ngannou, but but that's going to be the norm then. Every champion is going to be a free agent within a year. And every one of those champions then could test the open market. And all of a sudden the PFLs of the world could bid on their services. And that's going to shake things up tremendously. So I think I think the antitrust lawsuit is by far the biggest story and and just depending on what happens there that's going to that's going to change the sport or shift the sport a lot in the upcoming years do you feel like the sport in general is is, is on a healthy uptick as as we can as we enter a new year the you know the sport seems bigger than ever and there seems to be more global dollars funneling into the sport i think you know i think the ufc's profits are bigger year over year. And, and if you compare what guys are being paid now compared to years ago, they're making a lot more money at the UFC. But I think I think their percentage of revenues is as bad as ever. And uh, the UFC stranglehold over the sport seems stronger than ever. So, so you know, it's, it's tough in terms of answering whether it's healthy or not. You know, I guess if I had to say in a word, I'd say it's not until there's some kind of structural change that gives some of the power back to the athletes that's been stripped away from them year after year. Last question for me, if I can, Eric. Do fighters need a manager or do they just need a lawyer like you to read their contracts? Jeez. So <laughs> you're you're good with the loaded questions, Luke, and and uh you probably know my view on it. So so some managers do really good work and let's let's look at Markel Martin, who was Francis Ngannou's manager. Sure. That's a manager doing great work. He stood up to the UFC, said, this dude's going to 
fight out his contract. He's going to test free agency. I'm sure he had really uh, pointed conversations with Francis and he stood his ground and the UFC machine threw him under the bus said he needs, this guy needs a new manager, doesn't know what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. But Francis is, you know, getting paid more than anybody now. It's, it's wonderful what a good manager can achieve. Now, if you have a manager and all that manager does is gets you into the UFC because that manager has a cozy relationship with the UFC, that to me seems like a broken system, right? That, that does seem like a problem. And the other question then is, can the manager change any of these contractual terms? The UFC, you know, they've got floors of lawyers putting these contracts together, 30-page promotional agreements. Is your manager able to negotiate those terms, change those terms? If not, what's the manager doing for you, right? Uh, is the manager able to negotiate more pay if they're taking 15, 20%? Is the pay they're getting 20% more than you can get on your own? If not, I don't know what the managers are doing. So this, again, circles back to the antitrust. Like I hate, you know, it's it's all roads lead to Rome. And I hate to be a broken record, mm. but when you get one promoter with so much power, and then they could have cozy, good managers, and then they basically dump on the managers that are standing up and fighting for their athletes. That seems like a structural problem within the sport. So until you change some of the core ways that MMA works at the highest level, um, I don't think a lot of managers can do a lot of good. And I think managers with integrity would be steering fighters towards the antitrust lawsuit. They'd be steering fighters towards some kind of organization like the MMAFA. They'd be trying to have a bit more of a united collective voice to fight back. That's the job a good manager can do. And yeah, there's some good managers out there and there's some you know, really, really lousy managers out there as well. Well, there you have it. If you want more of Eric McGrath, and I don't know why you wouldn't, you can go to combatsportslaw.com. What are your socials, Eric? Uh, Twitter's my main one. So, so just my name, Eric McBracken is my handle on all my social media, but Twitter's where I waste most of my time. Well, we are glad that you do. Eric, thank you so much for your insight. We look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you. There he goes. Eric McGracken. Uh, all right, BC with that, let's quickly wrap up here with our top five. If we can topic number five, just the reaction to, there was a little bit that happened actually over the combat sports weekend. If we can, BC, I'm not sure what to say. We had two boxing first-round stoppages. Virgil Ortiz yeah. scores a quick, albeit horrendous stoppage. I want to talk about the stoppage in a second over Frederick Lawson setting up a potential Tim Zhu fight at 154 pounds. But the stoppage, BC, happened by referee Tony Weeks. This is relevant because Tony Weeks had the worst, in my view, the worst boxing stoppage of 2023 in the Ismael Barroso and Roly Romero fight. And this one, he had another horrendous stoppage. But BC, here's the story with this one. Tony Weeks takes to, I think, Facebook later and says, aha, well, this guy actually, Lawson, had had two, uh, two different scans that showed a brain aneurysm, but the commission let him fight when, I guess, we're not even sure, another doctor's opinion said he could. He deleted that post since then, by the way, and we've not heard from Nevada. BC, what the, what the fuck is going on here? What yeah, happened? He got skewered for that well look first of all that that assertion that he's making just really 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 and this is not a new argument it's a tired one the need for a national commission in boxing the need for not commissions that are you know uh chamber of commerces or promoters themselves to bring in big acts but commissions that that care and go through that because that's troubling 
to begin with that that there was potential of a fighter who was you know failing all of these important brain tests and then gets one that passes and then he's in and then first of all that shouldn't even be a part to be fair of the referee's uh thought in a specific moment i i you know what i mean like that's that's that shouldn't be that shouldn't give him a quicker hook either a fighter is healthy to compete or not this was the first round and on top of that lawson was not even eating clean punches i believe because i had it and have you seen this shit i believe we can throw to uh footage of the stoppage for anybody that missed it uh that's virgil ortiz jr on the right remember he had come off a long stretch of, of uh, scary health conditions himself, only fought once in two years. This was him moving up to 154, put a little flurry on Frederick Lawson in the corner. But as you can see, a lot of those getting blocked. Again, this is the first round, and that stoppage by Tony Weeks is troublesome. So let's be very honest here. First of all, Tony Weeks is one of the greatest referees in modern history. Why? Because like the late Steve Smoger, he is the greatest of being a fan referee and a, and a fighter-friendly ref referee. He lets them fight, okay? All I have to say is Corrales Castillo won, and Tony Weeks, who authored that, is going to go in the Hall of Fame regardless, even if it was just that one performance. But he has had other great performances. He's known for letting them fight. You remember Mayweather Maidana one and two, two completely different fights? He refed the first one when he allowed Maidana to really roughhouse inside. We got to see a totally different, interesting fight. He's also 67 years old. At some point, that does matter. And now he's also got two major, major slip-ups to the, to, the, to the level here that Dan Raphael, who I used to work with at ESPN, Fight Freaks Unite, we all know him, respect him. He's been around forever. He said that is the worst stoppage he has ever seen in 43 years of watching and covering the sport. There's, it's an unforgivable stoppage. But I think you have to take into account now age, mixed with two major F-ups in big moments. And one more thing, Tony Weeks was the referee when David Merle Jr. fought Eidos Yerbosinoli on Showtime in the past couple of years. And remember, Yerbosinoli took a tremendous beating over 12 rounds, but showed an incredible heart. And uh, I believe that fight went the distance. I believe it was 12 rounds. But the whole point was he went into a medically induced coma. He's come out of it, Luke, for, for the positive, it seems. But like, unfortunately, we've seen that story go the wrong direction a lot. Did that change Tony Weeks as a referee? It's a real, normal, important question we have to ask. But this is a larger issue on the idea that we're rolling out the same names all the time. Is Nevada a reputable commission in this case? We got a lot of questions about them. This guy, as much as I love Tony Weeks, he's got to go come off. He's got to come off the, the 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 routine here. He's got to come off the streets and either get key training or 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 be retired because this is. This is not acceptable. You know, for guys like Ismael Barroso, who got robbed in that stoppage against Rolly Romero. Now, Barroso did come back this weekend and score a huge upset knockout. So we got another conversation to be had. But that may be in that man's only chance there to come out with one big payday and win a world title at the end. So these decisions, while based on the idea of helping the fighter, and that's what Tony Weeks was trying to say. He had information he felt that that made him want to protect the fighter. Well, if the, if the fighter was in that dire of a spot, we shouldn't have been having the fight, should we have? You know what I mean? A referee shouldn't be with that mentality of, well, I might have to jump in even sooner because I'm not even sure this guy should be in there. Maybe the guy shouldn't be in there. Unfortunately, Luke, it's not just maybe Lawson shouldn't have been in there. We're now finding out Weeks shouldn't have been in there either. And you've been calling for guys that get up in age that start to slip a little bit. Like, why are we wasting time? Kenny Bayless just retired at 73. He's going to be a Hall of Famer and not retire because 
He was awful, just got to the end of it. You get to the end of it. Sometimes fights change a guy. I wonder what changed in weeks, but this is not the guy we know, and this is not a safe referee right now, even if trying to make safety happen was his priority and goal. It's it's not a good look, Luke. It makes more people watch the sport and go, why am I watching? It's all fixed to begin with, right? But like when you watch stuff like this and it keeps happening, who's stepping in and taking charge of this? Who? Yeah, not the I, national. I, I would just, I would, we don't have one. We don't have a national. I would just, I would just add like weeks disclosing that. First of all, I want to see that verified. And I said that to you guys over uh, over text. I was like, I, I mean, maybe what he's saying is true. I don't know, but I'm not going to believe it just because he says it. Someone needs to verify that. Number one. Number two, if the guy was cleared, then he was cleared. That's the that you know you you handicapping it in this way. Is really not the point. Also, if he was cleared, that's gross by the athletic commission. Assuming what he says is true, I just actually don't believe what he said is really true. I think he got some of the details wrong, and I don't even know if he's supposed to be revealing those kinds of things. That's another. No, they part would of this not whole want story. him to say that publicly, Luke. I th I have to believe he was sick of the look. They're it's not an easy job when you have a job when you're an official or a field goal kicker or something where we're only gonna talk about you usually when you screw up, right? You know what I mean? Like it's not an easy job to have. But it's a very important job. He's probably getting killed. It, it sucks that you can have like a Hall of Fame career and then have one or now two blemishes change the way people think of you. But Luke, these are pretty important blemishes he's had. These, these, yeah, they're, these. They're serious. They're now, serious. The the good news about that 2023 blemish he had, where he stepped in and stopped the fight against Barroso opposite Romero, which was we called it at the time that he was that he, you know those guys had stolen from. Ismael yep. Barroso, like there's no doubt in my mind. Guys, I have great news. I have the best news ever. So Ismael Barroso ended up fighting O'Hara Davies, who was supposed to be this kind of like hyped prospect, not hyped prospect, but hyped guy coming out of the UK. And the winner of that was going to get Romero. Well, despite the fact that Davies was kind of like promoted as the guy to be like the next guy, 40-year-old, Fuck, look at this 40-year-old Venezuelan bastard. He can punch his ass off. Can he not? He is so heavy-handed and just blitzes this guy. BC, Davies didn't land a single punch in this fight. And I want you to pay attention quickly to the reaction of Barroso. Watch here. He's going to drop him again because this old, this old goat can fucking punch, dude. If nothing else, he can do that. Damn. By the way, the back of his trunk says Christ lives. Indeed. Wait till they show him here. Wait till they show him here. By the way, referee finally not being Cochino wearing the gloves. Thank you. They stop it and watch when they show watch when they show Ismael. Watch this. He's going to wave it here. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. That is what it's all about, dude. That is that's, what it's all about. They like stole from that guy and he got it back, dude. He got it back. That's like Nganu crawling through the Andy shithole for Shawshank and getting to the other side right there and then being yes. like, yeah, I didn't fumble shit, MFers. Damn, dude, that was a great moment. Unfortunately, uh, we had the uh, bad stop. So, Luke, Virgil Ortiz Jr., like, we want to start talking to him about him in big fights, and I know he called out Tim Zhu, which is wild. We and only Tim saw Tim Zhu said he wanted it on Twitter. Yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did. All right, there you go. Thank there you. we go. Oh, well, I knew you would be, man. There it is. So Tim Zhu had heard the call out. He said, yo, Virgil, welcome to the 54 Club. I'm always keen for a modern-day classic. Virgil Ortiz Jr. saying, I knew you would. Let's do it. Look, that fight would be a war, dude. That would be a war. But like a I know. I would like war. to I would like to spend Monday talking more about Virgil Ortiz, but there, from that fight, there's just nothing to say. Um, 
What, yeah. what can what can you say? Uh, BC, I kind of want to punt on the Ryan Garcia stuff unless you really want to get to it. No, no, that's fine. Uh, but just to yeah. sum it up in 10 seconds for you. Ryan wanted Haney next. It seemed like that's what De La Hoya wants. Ryan changed his mind. He wants Roley next. I'm wondering how much the influence of Floyd Mayweather, who has been on training runs with Ryan. He's been with him in the gym in Miami. Maybe that's why Garcia put out that shoulder roll against Duarte that didn't work. Uh, I wonder if Floyd is counseling him from a business standpoint that it would be better. Try to fight Roley, win that title. You'll have more leverage against Haney down the road. But uh, yeah, we'll have, we'll have some of this talk and have you seen the shit. Let's keep it rolling. All right. Well, with that in mind, it's time now for DMs from the old diggity donks. Hey, Luke, that, first that, 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 that donkey sounded like he was doing something gross. I never realized that until now ejaculating <laughs> well 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 donkey if you uh, you know what i mean if, yeah mikey so, mikey sweating bullets right now all right yeah, yeah. uh from j rock hey, yo, t11 don't let mikey sweat bullets mikey put in the chat is aj versus nganu the greatest body fight of all time luke he's this yeah. guy first you team know. first team all body yeah yeah we know what kind of porn that he's watching i mean what are you gonna say all right from J Rock T11, or however you want to say these a random assortment of letters and numbers, how many competitive losses can Francis have in boxing before interest lessens? As a casual fan, I have Francis winning versus AJ, though. What do you think, BC? Um, I think because of Wilder being out there, which is a unique matchup where Wilder has not looked good lately, um, if, if Francis can do what Luke said earlier, knock down AJ, have a credible performance, but lose, maybe gets outboxed on the cards. I think he can get another big one out of it. But to the point of this uh, question asker, you're right. If the losses start adding up. It, it will be diminishing returns each time. The key though, will be what happens if he wins. If he wins, if he wins, all, Luke, all bets are off. Most, this is the most remarkable story of all time. If he wins, it might already be really seriously, but yeah, if he loses, let's give him either the wilder or some type of gimmick fight. And you know, I mean, dude, I'm, I don't think it's impossible that they could get him in China against Zhang Zhele for that secondary title. They could probably get a lot of money for that, but, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. We'll All see. right. Uh, question number two from Joe and then his social security number. What would you two put the odds at for a Colby versus Sean Brady five round fight? Ooh. Uh, Sean Brady minus 250. Yeah. Two, I was going to say 275, 250. Um, I mean, younger, stronger. Yeah. I mean, Colby uh, better did, submissions. He had failure to launch. He had failure to launch last time out. I mean, he did rally late with the wrestling, but he didn't turn it into anything. So if Brady could match him in the wrestling, we'll see what Brady can do on the feet again. Yeah, I hate that fight, though. I don't want to see that fight. I don't want to see Colby anymore. He's got X-Pac heat. Get off my screen. Uh, also, the other part, too, is he did turn it into something, which was he turned it into a car wash of right-wing media opportunities to, like, proclaim that he lost because the judges had bias against him, which is uh, stupid. Very stupid. All right. Uh, question number three. It's not cage fighting asks, assuming they go under which one championship fighters should be signed by the UFC and PFL uh, and it's only Malikin, yes. uh, any of their champions basically. Right. But the thing is, would Demetrius go back? That's the interesting part, right? I don't think Demetrius would. I, I think I've heard enough interviews. Like, I don't know. So he considers himself a, bantamweight again right because when you fight in right. one at flyweight so let, me, let me pitch this to you let me pitch it to you bc let me pitch it to you at 135 dj versus patchy mix sick fight okay patchy mix is not in the uh 
in the uh, Apache Mix is going to be on the other side of the street with the PFL Bellator train, most okay. likely. Okay, right? I mean Would they be. can fucking make a baby. All right, I thought you were going to go. I thought you were going to go DJ Cejudo three for the title oh. if Henry if Henry was able to secure it. I wonder if that would be the only matchup because I don't think DJ. I know he's not motivated by like reminding people who he is or adding to the re- legacy. So no, he's not coming over. But Malikin would be the number one draft pick, Anatoly Malikin, right? I mean, I would love to see RDR over there. I'd love to see yeah, obviously RDR too. Yep. Both Rod Tang and uh, Stan Fairtech spring excitement and, and brawling you know fever but what what weight class is uh old old stamp in is that 115 and one or is she in the lower one i think that's right yes or she at adam weight um, i think right no she's at adam weight probably but if right? it's What's adam that? weight it is 115 oh fair point all right so we imagine if we got her into the ufc straw weight pool luke that'd be wild right it'd be kind of fun yeah i mean there's a lot of good i mean dude again it's not like one doesn't have good fighters it's not like pfl doesn't have good fighters it's not like Bellator doesn't have good fighters, but what they don't have is the ability to get the kind of people that the public wants to see them against, which enables them to bid on the competitive services of people that can make you money. They don't have that. Um, anyway. Every time you say that name of that promotion, I'm like, one, oh, one. You know what I mean? I'm back in my own prison, Luke. The only way is one. I mean, look, look, as lame as Creed is, and we all know this, you have to respect that first record. It's, it is now my workout playlist. Luke, it is all right. It's not even as good as Helmet's worst album. Have you ever heard Creed's My Own Prison record, Luke? I have heard it multiple times. I listened to all it right. in high school like a fucking idiot, like you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Luke, uh, Mike, we'll get yeah, to the yeah, video. We'll get to the video, uh, Mikey. That video I sent you. We'll get to it at the end of Have You Seen the Shit? If that's okay. Uh, quickly, question number four from Von Beckel. Von Beckel. Who is the most capable MMA journalist that can handle themselves? Well, BC fondles himself. Does that count? Uh, do we count Mike Jackson in this, Luke, as a videographer turned? Uh... Or, or or about Stefan Struve? Stefan Struve is an okay, MMA journalist. Okay, not, quite... not counting the crossover people that we just mentioned who, are, who have some obvious actual degree of fighting. Based on the body types and the toughness of meeting them, I mean, both... Both Oscar Willis and EKC Leiden did take amateur fights, which I have a lot of respect for True. their willingness to to get to do that. Would you say like a Sean Alshadi because he looks athletic, Luke? Or am I, you know, what am I missing? Who who am I missing? Um, the the thing is, he's got uh, bad knees. He's got real bad yeah. knees. Oh, I thought you were going to rip his hairline. I was like, we don't have to, we don't have to go there. Well, he has no hair whatsoever. I mean, yeah. just <laughs> yeah. I mean he looks like he looks like sure, Charlie yeah. Villanueva. I mean, it's it's he it's Dunzo for him. Uh, um. Dan I mean, Tom out of MMA Schmo Junkie, I think has an amateur. Who? Could the Schmo scrap a little? I could see the Schmo Probably being like bit. an amateur wrestler or something. Probably yeah. a little bit, yeah. Probably a little bit. All right. I mean, the MMA back in, media back is... in my twenties, I want everyone to know I would have beaten the fuck out of every one of them. But uh, you know, there's just a bunch of Ray Mundies in MMA media these days. Luke, real yeah, nice guys, just, right? You know, it's just it's just it's, and BC and I are now included in this, but it's just garbage yeah. pail kids. You know, it, it doesn't yeah, really. I mean, I'm a lover, Luke, not a fighter. We know this about me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Lastly, but not leastly. Antonio M. Alvarez asks, which two fighters should make a buddy road trip comedy? This is uh, the worst about, question I've ever heard. How about Kiesa um, and Felder? No. Okay. They're too, they're too about, nice. Oh, dude, DC and Habib are hilarious together. DC and Habib is a good one. DC and Habib is a good one. I was going to say, what about Izzy and Alex Pardita? <laughs> no, no. How about Glover and Alex? How about Sean Strickland and Ian Gary? 
no, not into no? that. Not into that at all. Uh, no, not into that. No. How about Song Yadong and then like Tom Aspinall or something? Some like totally different size and background and everything else. Are we allowed to match up males and females, Luke? Or am I yes. like doing yes. adult film no, casting do at, the, at the moment? Yeah, it's probably weird. It's probably unless you're doing like unless you're doing like you know yeah back room. Uh, yeah. In fact, casting. I'm removing myself from this question moving forward. Thank you. Yeah, this is a lot of us want to be like a lot of fans like and understandably they like they want us to treat fighters like like they're our best friends. But I don't look at them that way. I don't think of them as like buddy cop duos. I think of them as just dudes who fight in an octagon or don't. That's that's really it. Yeah. True. You want to see All some right, shit? Time for BC's boy BC is really just well, well, I uh, my, Mikey, like it's been... a fun. Mike, okay, I'm gonna talk, and then you could talk. Ready for that? Here we go. Mikey says it's a fun question. It is a fun question, but I'm not a fun person, and that kind of hurts me. That kind of hurts me. What's the question I'm supposed to entertain here? The last one, which was which two fighters would make a buddy cop comedy? I, for I gave a lot movie. more effort in giving answers than you did in that, Luke. Okay. What was your official answer? What was your final answer? Uh, DC and Habib. That is a good one. That I, I that's probably the best one we're gonna come up with. That's probably that's a good one. I agree. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Okay. All right. Yeah. With that in mind, let's see your feces. All right. Hey, I scoured the globe. It's been a, been about a month. It feels like since we've done this. A few weeks at least. The good, the bad, the ugly, the high lows. Combat sports. There better beyond. be some elder abuse on this one. Uh, there is some of that. All right. Maybe a tattoo to rate too. Hey, let's see this shit already. Let's. Go. Uh, Luke, the zone boxing from Las Vegas. We touched on this a little bit earlier. We can speed through here, though. But Barroso getting that KO. I do wonder if he gets Roly next, though. Roly jumped in the ring and they hug and, and embrace. But if Roly ends up getting Rye Guy, who does Barroso get? I'm not really sure. Can we see this, Mikey? You can. I could talk over it, right? Should be able to. There it is. Yeah, there we go. There's there's Barroso. One more. Boom, time. dude! That's look at that left hand, dude. This old, this old goat. He's Dude, that so old many, tractor that just won't quit running. There's so many players at 140, though. Golden Boy just signed Jose Ramirez. He was on the broadcast. Like, Barroso could get a huge fight against anybody, to be fair. About well time. done there. Let's keep it going. Let's go to the next one, Mikey. This is, Here's this a slow is motion Virgil. replay of that week's stoppage, Luke. I don't know what you're going to say about this now. Nothing. I mean, some of these get through. Some of these, I'm sure, were hard. He has a good left hook to the body there underneath the gloves. That's nice, you know? Um, I, I'm sure the guy was hurt. The question is not whether he was hurt. The question is, why did you stop it? Like, if this is round 10, I would say Lawson did it to himself by not throwing back enough. It's round one, right? Nothing right, got through. I don't know. What are we yeah. doing? All right. Uh, Virgil Ortiz, and, uh, we'll skip the zoo tweet. We already saw that. Let's go to topic number two. A lot of weird fallout, Luke, over Ryan Garcia changing his mind. Did you notice Oscar twice on the broadcast kept saying, we want to make Ryan against Haney. Well, Ryan said, this is a, a this is a collaboration of all the tweets. He said, I've notified my team. I'm going a different route. My intent now is to fight Roley. I pray my team backs me on this. Oscar, make this fight happen. That's the move. Bigger fight, bigger business. Then Haney posted and deleted, don't ever mention my name, pussy boy. B-O-I on that boy. Then you get Rye Guy coming back and going, you'll be back. And then he did hashtag 30,000 pay-per-view buys, which is what he was saying that Haney did against uh, Ruguru. And then you go to that next slide. You got Ryan saying, after what happens to Roley's, the Devon fight will be there and be even bigger. Everyone critiquing now will end up seeing it was a better move. Plus, he can go get Richardson Hitchens's 
Hitchens, go do your 30,000 pay-per-view buys. I don't need you, Dev. You need me. And then Roley coming back with hashtag spring 2024. Luke, is Ryan Garcia wrong that he's now saying, hey, Devin, on the A-side, you screwed up by thinking it was Haney versus Garcia. Um, Haney's the champion. He didn't screw up at all, right? That part's lame. No, it's super lame. I mean, here's the thing. I actually don't mind Garcia prioritizing Romero. I just wish he wouldn't have tried it to go through Haney first and then just switched all at the end there. Yes. That, that's the part that gets me. Like, I get the, I get why you want the Romero fight first because then he can have the belt. It's a whole thing, but yeah. Well, what's weird is you make Oscar go after this Haney fight. Then you tweet out before this broadcast happens that you are you don't want Haney anymore, but either nobody told Oscar or Oscar's trying to F him because, like I said, he did two separate interviews on the broadcast, and both of them were like, we heard what Ryan said. We can't wait to make Ryan versus Devin. And it's like, well, hold on, dude. Probably because if you're going to fight Roley, unless Al Heyman lets Roley jump to, to Golden Boy, you probably have to do that. If Roley's a champion, which he is, you probably have to do that on PBC's networks, right? I don't know if you can make that oh. fight now that we talk about it. All right. All right. Uh, Luke, the fallout even went deeper. Have you seen this shit? Bernard Hopkins, who works for Golden Boy, was talking to Bill Haney, the father of Devin, about business after the main event on Saturday, and then this happened. Nope, let's go to the bathroom. Huh? I'm talk to the bathroom for a minute. <laughs> No, you get out and you talk when you matter. You talk when you got respect that. Huh? No, I said you talk when you want to talk at. Luke, what does it mean when you tell another man, let's go to the bathroom? That means either we're going to hang out with George Michael or, or it's about to go down, right? Hey, you're either fighting or fucking. That's it. I mean, there ain't there ain't no other option. Well, then a lot of people it's not, are going. It's hey, not fight or flight. It's fight or fuck. That's that's what you're gonna do there. A lot of people are going. Hey, didn't be Bernard Hopkins just say the same thing in December? So Luke, they were at the WBA convention in Orlando the same weekend as Jake Paul's return fight, and then somebody spit in the face of Samson Lukowitz, and then it was the son of Elvis Grant Phillips who makes the gloves. So B Hop went after Elvis. Let's watch it. He said the same thing. Samson just chased him down from the hip. You know, I, I think you can fucking score. I think you can score. I just can't. Samson, 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 if you really, if you really say who you is, my friend, come on, let's go back here. Let's go back here, me and you. No, 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 I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that? Why? No, I'm not fighting you. I'm talking to him. Listen, I'm not fighting you. I'm talking to him. We have the conversation. We have the conversation. We have the conversation. We have the conversation. Let's mean you like men. Let's mean you like men. Go in the bathroom by ourselves. Let's mean Yeah. Oh, he's not coming. No, 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 you heard what he said? No, 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 don't hold on, hold on. You said spin in his face. Luke, uh, dude, boxing is such a disorganized clown show. It's insane. 
Would you be man enough to go in the bathroom if Bernard Hopkins asked you? Yes or no? I don't want to fight or bang him. I don't want to do either of those things. Well, you know flashback to 2015, boxing publicist and longtime writer Mitch Abramson. I searched on Twitter. He said, I just got punched in the stomach by B-Hop in the men's room. Something to tell my kids. Luke, stay out of the bathroom with Bernard Hopkins. Lesson <laughs> learned. Uh, to close, after Bernard and Bill had this little verbal dust up, it actually got physical. Watch Bernard closely on this video. Devin Haney is the best fighter in the world, and ain't no dad gonna do what I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna go about it. That's nothing. That's nothing. That's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. Listen, just like I said, for all the dads around the world, just don't, you don't go, you're not gonna be bullied by Bernard Hopkins or nobody. I got the best. Okay, Luke, Bernard Hopkins almost got into a fight with Gervonta Tank Davis when he was on the scales with Ryan. What is going on here, Luke? What the hell is happening? Dude, Bernard is old school Philly, bro. Old school Philly, is he not? He doesn't give a fuck. He is still about it, about it. Like, you better, you know. Damn. It's, dude, we, we picked the worst industries to work in. Hey, we should work in MMA and boxing. We have great opinion. I think Bruiser Brody got shivved in the men's room in Puerto Rico that time and never came out Fucking of there. Luke, worst industries that. on earth. All right. Hey, Luke, it's time to mess check in on the whites, right? Let's go to this roof trampoline opportunity. Hey, let's see how they're doing. <laughs> Luke, does he walk away from that or no? Was that an escape from Jan 6? What, what was that? That was... Dude, uh, run it one more time, but don't play it. Don't play it. Don't play it just yet. But I want you to note something. It looks like there's a camera switch. Like, you know how, like, in uh, the 80s, they'd have, like, guy, like, like, running off a cliff. And then as he runs, because they couldn't do special effects back then, they would toss, like, a dummy off the cliff. And then they, you, you could tell it wasn't the guy, but it was supposed to be the guy. It looks like right when he hits the trampoline, there's, like, a switch. No, it's just his legs coming outside of his body. Watch one more time. That, that Chewbacca sound was him, Luke, growling in slow motion. Hey, it's time for uh, bumper stickers of the week, Luke. Let's go to the bumper for this one, would you? Honk, if you have a fat coochie. All right. That is a, uh, that's a nice classy lady. This one says, I'm into fitness. Fitness boob in my mouth. <laughs> and the next one? Captain Blue Balls just cut you off. And he's got blue balls literally hanging from the bottom of his truck. Yeah, that's something. All right, let's go over to these. Amer uh, these people should lose the right to vote. I mean, I, I feel like if you have a bumper sticker like that, where you're like declaring very loudly a very stupid opinion, you have then forfeited the right to participate in our uh, democracy. <laughs> Look, let's go to uh, you ever been to like Goodwill or Savers or, you know, they got they got used sure. products that make no sense. You know what I'm saying? What's going on here, Luke? Uh, well, for $3, you can find out. <laughs> uh, Luke, you remember Anthony Pettis' famous Showtime kick in the WEC against Benson Henderson? Did you know that the cameraman also caught it to the pills? Watch this. There was a camera guy on the fence. When I jumped off, I kicked him in the nuts. And then I hit, <laughs> and then I hit the Evan Henson. He, he, I saw him at the UFC fight. So a two-hitter. He was like, you know you kicked me in the nuts. Watch, you can see it. I jumped oh, off the fence. Hey. Nuts. <laughs> oh. 
poor bastard had no idea that ever happened. That's hilarious. Uh, spinny shit of the week, Luke, doesn't come from regional MMA where anything can happen. It comes from a death metal show. This is what Luke Thomas is all about. Wow. Dude, was that a girl he hit? No, I think it's a dude, but, um, I mean, dude looks like a lady, which is fine, Luke, but I think, look at this. I mean, what? How, ah. do, you, how do you defend this? No, that's a girl. It's just a really heinous one. All right. Wow. Okay. That was unnecessary. <laughs> hey, let's go to the NFL, Luke. We got some hot piss and some glory holes in that order. Let's check out this fan. What would you do if you saw this, Luke? This was me on the lawn of a Dave Matthews concert one time. But that's, uh, dude, well, again, I'm going to ask one more time. Why would you ever go to an NFL game? Why would you ever go? Although this looks like a college game, in which case I could ask the same question. Why would you? This is what my friend was doing in New York City when he was, uh, yeah, let's keep that in. Uh, let's go to our final one. This is Jerry Jones, owner of the Cowboys. It's a reminder. I, too, have been here 23 years. And uh, it is a reminder. I've been here when it was glory hole days, and I've been here when it wasn't. And so having said that, uh, uh, I want me some glory hole. <laughs> so I have that perspective. You know, I'm not okay. Of all the ways to get your rocks off, I've never found that one to be especially interesting. Okay, all right. I don't need that level of analysis. <laughs> you put the anal in analysis right there, Luke. But let's move on. Uh, your real <laughs> MMA KO of the week. Watch this fake injury finish. I don't, is this legal? I love it. Oh. oh. He's like, watch me tie my shoes. No, bitch. He did. He know what he did. Hold on. You know what he did? Play it one more time. I'm gonna narrate. Play it one more time, Mikey. Oh, oh, call an ambulance, but not for me. Ah, bitch. <laughs> That's got me hungry, Luke. So hungry. Watch this snow tubing accident. Comes with a meal deal, Luke. Yeah, you get the old choco taco with this one. What? Oh, the syrup? Or yeah, okay. There you go. Hey, somebody was looking for elder abuse. Let's keep the show going here. This is great. Look at these. Oh, look yeah. at these let's give her. Ladies. Let's give her the thing you got to balance on. Hopefully, there's crocodiles in that motherfucker. <laughs> look, what country is this? I, I don't know. I'm gonna guess Southeast Asia, but I could be totally wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Could be South Florida for all we know. I mean, maybe it was a bad oh, idea. Oh, take a dip, bitches. Ah, oh, they did. piranhas. They did. They're not the only ones that got wet. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, dude. You're gonna, dude, you're going to fucking kill Granny with that shit. Oh, wow. They tried to play a prank on her, Luke. Ah, bitch. Ah, go drown. Go drown, whore. Okay. Uh, Luke, this was me at most college bars, unfortunately. Watch the man in the yellow shirt. Uh, that's assault, brother. And it's and it, yeah. <laughs> all right. Hey, Luke, why don't we rate that tat? It's been enough time. Check out this Eddie Guerrero, the late WWE star. This tat is brought to you by um, Andrea Fiorenza. What do you think of this, Luke? Okay, well, that is a very good stenciling. Let's see. I think this is elite stuff here. Let's see when it's all done. 
That is an extremely good tattoo. Heck yeah, that's a ten out that of a ten. Extreme, you sent me yeah, that's a ten out of ten. One. Let's go to Steve Butcher's artwork, Luke. This is Connor and Nate. You told me that you would never want a Connor and Nate tat on your body, but if you did, it'd be this one. You did not it. quite. It's not what I said. What I said was I'd rather have full blown AIDS than an MMA tattoo. Um, which is true. I'd rather have full-blown AIDS than any kind of marking on my body related to MMA. However, if you're going to get an MMA tattoo, play it one more time, Mikey. If we can. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good tattoo. That's like a very good Mick, tattoo. A little bit, right? Yeah, Nate looks yeah. a little patchy. In that a one. little yeah. bit, but in general, I mean, that's a very good tattoo. Yeah. yeah, all right. Let's go back to the future here. This isn't Jay Aaron's leg, Luke, but what do you think of it? Ooh, it's like a new school kind of mesh Back to the Future 2 kind of Rick and Morty thing. That is, uh, I wouldn't want it, but that's a very good tattoo. Really, really good. Luke, what do they call a tattoo on the lower back of a Jan Sixer? A tramp stamp? A Trump stamp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> by, the way, you could your clothes, by the way, could your clothes fit worse? Wow, well, hold on, go back, go back, go back, Mikey, go back. You got the worst tattoo on earth, number one. Number got a two, nice mole. yeah, <laughs> nice just a mole, a, mole, a mole the size of Jupiter on your back. Get that lasered off, you absolute oaf. Okay, and then okay. and then last of all, dude, look at these pants. Don't fit at all. He's got a goddamn cartridge belt that he's trying to use to hold them shits up. My guy, just listen, just just. Well, that's go that's die. the second best tattoo of the week. Here's the real best one, Luke. What do you think about the quality of this one? Okay, well that is. Uh, <laughs> disturbing <laughs> okay. truly disturbing uh, nhl jersey of the week time here <laughs> i mean i don't Wait, know if uh fisted your sister number 69 in your scorebooks luke <laughs> and uh yeah yeah here you go all right uh how about we close with some fun with fireworks here i think i call these indoor sparklers you ever do these inside luke no, I'm not an idiot. Oh, happy new year. Yeah, well, why don't you catch shit on fire, you absolute fucking mongrels. <laughs> I mean, why don't you just put it in your mouth and see what happens, right, Luke? Get that out of here. They're like, get the tree out the house. Yeah, we have, yeah just catch more shit on fire, you dumb fucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's still going. White people be crazy, Luke. Let's go to our second one here. What is this? Uh, this is in oh, that man's like a mouth. bottle rocket. Yeah, nothing, nothing can go wrong here. Probably. BC, I can't believe he's white. It seems so out of character. Yeah, why don't you? Yeah, here's. <laughs> Look, I think we could call the next one crotch rocket. Right, watch this. All right. This guy's yeah. crazy. Okay, yeah. okay. My man, my man's had a bit too much to drink. I think it's the most action he's had in a long time. I'm proud of it. Probably, Luke. yeah. Look at that. Congrats By the way, it the says Puerto Colombia con Julio. So that and was probably finally, somewhere in Colombia. Uh, make sure the women and children are are, uh, are are safely put away before this guy like these kids. Watch this up close. Wow, wow.
one, two, ten. Yeah, all right. You Dude, that was a fucking wow. assault. What did they do? Yeah, uh, they, they, they nearly damn killed themselves. Luke, okay, let's keep it going here. We got two left. You've heard of Shoeys. Luke, in Australia, they want to take it to the next level. First, he reaches down in for the athletic support. Do you think Tuivasa would do this? I mean, what's send, going on? Send down? every one of these people to the gulag where Brittany Griner was. Okay, okay, okay. Dude, I mean, that's look another at these. Look the at these disgusting oafs. Yeah, I mean, you gotta have standards, you know. Wow. Okay, I got one more for you to close. It's self-explanatory. This is your shit of the week. Look, you ever bop somebody's bottle and then it explodes yes. like that? It's yeah, worst, I've, done that right? a million I've done that a million times. Oh! <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, oh my yeah. God! Yeah, that's uh, that's where your uh, that's where your money's going, Luke. When Tukes is ready to take it to the next level, secondary. I am I am, I am truly frightened about these that yeah. day. Truly. All right, that's all the shit I got. Uh, two Not hours. bad. Not bad. He had a pretty good batch. I give that batch a solid B plus, maybe A minus. If I'm feeling generous, pretty good. Pretty good. There you go. Uh, let's remind everyone about the socials. We got some socials you can follow us here. And we'll put them up here on the screen in just a minute. We're on TikTok. We're on Insta. We're on Twitter. You can see all the different stuff there. Give us a follow. Yeah, thanks to what? Ernie McCracken for coming by today, Luke, right? Yeah, Big Big Earn from Big Lebowski. Oh, not Big Lebowski. I'm sorry. From uh, what's the movie? Big Earn. Uh, Kingpin. 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 Uh, from Kingpin for coming by. We appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Uh, you can morningcombat at gmail.com to reach Mikey if you want to do that. And then, of course, morningcombat.store to get merch such as that may tickle your fancy, BC. Anything else? Yeah, you want 10% off? Try that live 10 code. It might just work for you. L-I-V-E-1-0. There you go. 10% off. Tell them BC sent you. Hey, if you got, I mean, it's wintertime, Luke. If your hands need lubrication, you know where to go. Look at those. My hands are all fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luke, what have you all been right. doing? Those look like knocking fools out and you got like excess you know yeah that's right i'll let i'll let these i'll let these i'll let these these dogs bark you know what i'm saying I know what you say. yeah yeah uh yeah. all right bc we're out of here for today we'll be back on wednesday we'll see you guys then thank you so much for joining me for the king of connecticut i'm luke thomas we appreciate you guys so much until next time may all of your gains be loyal